0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by IK Multimedia. IK Multimedia gives musicians access to the most famous and sought-after guitar gear and studio effects of all time with our Amplitube and t rex analog modeling software. Now, IK has created the ultimate all-in-one bundle for bands and engineers, the Total Studio 2 Max, combining all of IK's award-winning amps, effects, sounds, and more. It's everything you need to track, mix, and master your music. IK Multimedia, musicians first. For more info, go to www.ikmultimedia.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fascination Street Mastering Studios. Have your songs mastered by Jens Bogren and Tony Lindgren. The engineers that mastered bands like Opeth, Dimu Borgir, Arch Enemy, Creator. Sepultura, Amana Marth, and many more. By using the coupon code URM18 in the online mastering configurator, you'll receive a 15% discount on your order. The code is valid for the rest of the year. Visit www.fascinationstreet.se to learn more and book your mastering session today. And now your host, Al
1: Levy. This episode of the URM Podcast is brought to you by URM Enhanced our tier of premium content that's everything you need to know to deliver world-class mixes. The core of URM Enhanced is our library of fast tracks. Each one of the fast tracks is a video course that dives deep into a specific area of recording, mixing, or mastering, in a level of insane detail that you're just not going to find anywhere else. A few of my personal favorites are Guitar Editing with Joey Sturgis, Creating Ambience with Forrester Savell and Recording Metal Guitars with John Brown, you get instant access to over two dozen fast tracks, and that's over 50 hours of content when you join URM Enhanced, and we are always adding new ones. URM Enhanced members also get access to our Mix Rescue series, where we open up one of your mixes, perform a little surgery, and explain what we're doing every step of the way. And last but definitely not least, URM Enhanced members have the ability to book one-on-one Skype sessions with us and some of our friends. It's your chance to get a detailed mix crit, some career advice, or really whatever else you want. It's your time. To find out more or join URM Enhanced, just go to urm.academy and click the Get Enhanced link. So let me talk about Today's episode a little bit. I've got producer mixer Dave Otero on, and Dean from the band ArchSpire. Dean's the guitar player, or one of the guitar players, and really, really excited about this episode because as someone who has been a fan and creator of metal for, you know, a good quarter century at this point. I can remember when there's been turning points in the various genres, and by contrast, when there haven't been. And in the world of technical extreme metal, I personally feel like there hasn't been there hasn't been anything to come around and revolutionize since 2003 with Necrophagist. Epitaph, and it's not to say that there haven't been good bands, but when Necrophagist Epitaph came about, it raised the bar. It raised the bar both with the songwriting and technical uh, proficiency displayed in a way that just wouldn't be matched for you know over 15 years. But now we've got Archspire, and I do believe that they are that next evolution for technical death metal, and that's saying a lot. I mean, it's been 15 years. So I was very, very curious to talk to a member of the band um, and pick their brain. And as it turns out, the musical talent is strong with that one. Uh, These guys are some serious musicians. And I don't just mean technical chops. I mean musician with a capital M. Like real strong music background, real strong understanding of it. And it all makes sense when you hear their music. It all makes sense. And of course, Dave Otero is a great extreme metal mixer and producer. I think that that's one of the hardest, if not the hardest genre on earth to mix. And he's found a way to make his mixes sound raw and nasty, like there's blood dripping down your face, but also punchy, clear and modern. I mean, he's just great at it. It's not all he does, but that's what he's, I'd say, best known for. So this episode is great. We hear a lot about how two brilliant minds collaborated uh, and collaborated to create something greater than themselves. And, you know, if you liked the previous episode like this I did, which was with Machine the Producer and Chris Adler from Lamb of God. I'd like to know if if these producer plus musician episodes, if this is something you want more of. Let me know in the comments on YouTube or on our Facebook Private Producers Club, just wherever you can find me. Let me know if you want more of these, because I actually really enjoy recording these. Um, They're some of my favorite episodes to make, but You know, if you guys love them, then that makes me even more inspired to make more. So with that said, I'll stop talking and let you get into this episode of the URM podcast with Dave Otero and Dean from Archspire. Enjoy. Enjoy. David Dean Lamb, thank you for coming on the URM podcast. Welcome, and uh, let's talk some shit.
2: <laughs> Wait, I thought you said we weren't going to talk shit. No, no, we're not. <laughs> we're not. Now everyone knows we were
1: talking shit before the show. Uh, good job, guys. That's
3: true. They do.
1: Yeah, you guys missed it. It, it was pretty good, though. Like it was pretty good. I uh, I came up with a good one. <laughs> so everybody listening, you can just wonder about it, and uh, you're not going to find out. So that said,
3: how did you guys meet? Well, what was it? Paris, 1976 <laughs> at uh, Smokey oh, Club, you know? No, I mean, like, uh, we sought him out because, uh, Archbart we, we sought him out because uh, we love the work that he did. So I don't even know how we got really hooked up or maybe Spencer messaged yeah, Dave it was just like initially. A, a
2: random um, Facebook message from Spencer. He was like, hey, you want to record my band? I was like, What? What band is that? And then the rest is history.
3: Were you guys known at all yet when Mm
1: -hmm. you guys
2: got hooked
3: up? I mean, I guess so. I mean, we had done, uh, let's say we had done maybe six U.S. tours, five or six U.S. tours by then, and then maybe like a couple Canadian tours and a European tour and tour through Mexico. So we had done some like sort of international stuff um, because we're from like Vancouver, Canada. So I, I guess we sort of were, but uh, things really got a little bit more, uh, like, th- the band, the profile of the band got a lot bigger uh, after we worked with Dave.
2: They were definitely, when, it, like, when I looked them up, I, I knew the name, but I wasn't too familiar with the material when, when Spencer first hit me up. And people, I mean, you guys definitely had a big buzz going on, but a lot of it was kind of like the cliche centered around, like, the speed and, like, kind of, like, thinking it was, like, a gimmicky kind of deal. Um, which I, which it is. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I feel like a lot of that has
2: sort of, like, been put to bed, um, or at least that's not, like, the focal point of, you know, the band when you kind of bring it up these days. It, it's, it doesn't seem... Everyone's like, oh, yeah, that guy that talks real fast and that drummer that plays real fast, it's kind of more like those These are just super sick. So,
1: so um, if I'm understanding correctly, because... I only heard about the band when you told me about them, about Nail the Mix, and was like, damn, this is really great. But, uh, so, if I understand what you're saying correctly, uh, and I'm not going to name any names here, there was the kind of bullshit going around, like, these guys program their guitars and blah, 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 like, it's not real.
3: I think it was more just, like, this band is just relying on being fast and and showing off, basically.
2: Yeah. It wasn't—I didn't really see so much of the, like, accusational, like, these guys are fake and bullshit kind of thing. It's just that, oh, yeah, Archbar is cool. They they just play real fast, and that's, like, their only thing is it's just really fast. Rather than, like, having actual musical content, which clearly it does, as everyone kind of knows now, they were— at the time, it seemed like they, they were mostly just kind of thought of as, like, only that. Or at least that's what a lot of people, like, what the impression was for a lot of people.
1: That's a really easy thing for people to say when they get intimidated musically. <laughs> uh, no, I'm serious. I mean, that's the kind of thing that people would say about, you know, when guitarists first started to really get good in uh in heavier styles of music, like in the 80s and stuff. People would say, oh, yeah, that dude's fast, but he plays with no feel. Or, you know, that was just like the the cliche thing to say. And it just seems like the easiest thing for someone that feels intimidated to say um, because there's no correlation between speed and feel or speed and musicality. It's not... Because you have one doesn't mean you can't have the other. I mean, yeah, there's people who suck who play really fast, but there's also plenty of people who can't play fast
3: who suck. Let's talk about them. Let's talk about all the people who can't play fast and they suck. All right, so why did you guys seek Dave out? Honestly, like the the majority of the reason was because we really like what he did with um, cattle decapitation. So we sort of saw our band... Going on a bit of an upwards uh, trajectory, uh, big word. Uh, so when we when we saw what happened, Cattle Decapitation, which is basically they were a band that everybody kind of knew, but uh, they weren't on anybody's like, at least as far as I saw, like album top ten of the year for for uh, for the albums that they put out until they did that first album with Dave. I found like it, they made a much more mainstream. I mean, as much mainstream as you can get um, in this genre, it, because their name is Cattle. Do you have decapitation? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. But they that album, that monolith of inhumanity, really did a lot for them, and and we really liked the 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 album itself and the musicianship on the album, and like just everything about it, and also the production. And we knew that Dave wasn't just an engineer; he was also going to take our songs and be like, okay, well. You know, this part is kind of weak. This part's pretty strong. Let's do this again. Let's harmonize this part. So, that was a big reason because of that album specifically. And and I mean, all the other bands he's worked with as well were, were big, big fans of, like Cephalic Carnage and Allegiant and stuff. So, and uh, um, a lot of other bands, but specifically Cattle Decapitation.
1: So, you actually wanted to be produced?
3: Yeah. I mean, we didn't really even know what that was going to be like because we'd we we had done two albums before. Uh, Relentless mutation uh, with the same uh, the same engineer uh, producer engineer, but he, he's he's amazing. But he didn't really take as much of a hands on approach. I think is because it was a little bit further outside of of what he is used to doing. He doesn't necessarily listen to to the genre of music that we're playing. You kind of got to know the genre to pull this well, off. I mean, this is a thing. A lot of bands on the West Coast go to specifically these producers and we found like Dave was that kind of person that was just slightly outside of what people would normally use for this genre and that's what would set us apart sonically. So that's the the whole idea. Let's go a little bit outside of maybe what people would normally go to for this exact genre so that we'll sound a little bit different and I think that worked.
1: Okay, so you said that it was kind of scary though uh, going into – situation where you're going to be more produced rather than just engineered when it came
3: down to it, was it as scary as you thought it would be well i mean i th- I think that we all went in going okay well let's let's put as much as as much uh faith as we can to this person that knows that can know we know that they can do it, so we know that this this guy can do uh can do a lot of stuff for us uh musically let's just give him as much as we possibly can. So we pre pro the entire album. We demoed all the songs. We were, we tracked everything beforehand. So all like every instrument was totally done. And I was even getting a little bit into just mixing the demos that we had so that we could really get a feel for it. And as well, we, we played a lot of the songs on a mini tour on the way to the studio so that we could see what the crowd reactions were like. So that being said, we had most of it ironed out, but there was a lot of the small things. So some of the solos, some of the... Just parts uh, that we didn't feel were quite as strong. That's the stuff where, like, okay, let's let's hopefully get some cool ideas and get those beefed up. And and Dave is the kind of guy where you're in the studio with him, and you're tracking guitar, and he's like, "Let me see your guitar," and he'll he'll like try some harmonies, and and some of them really really work really well. Uh, some of them stink. All no, I'm just them, kidding. All <laughs> <them are amazing. laughs> no, and and I mean, like it's the same thing. With drums, the same thing with with vocal ideas. I mean, he's getting in there and 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 not being afraid to maybe okay. Well, you know, a lot of people might be like, oh, I'm not going to play guitar around you guys because whatever we're playing all fast, and for some reason that's impressive. But it's like Dave's like, no, I don't care. Like here, I'll just play this harmony, and then and then and then you track it uh, if you like the idea, and and that's the kind of stuff that we that we really like. Not somebody who's. There to show you what kind of musician he what kind of like instrumentalist he is. He's just there to help make the album better. And, and, uh, and that we really benefited
2: from that, I think.
1: Dave, how rare is it for a band to come in that prepared in your experience?
2: It's pretty rare. I mean, honestly, these days most bands are pretty good about it. Um, but Arch, Arch, Arch Spire, Spire, uh, definitely took it like further than most like I mean even while they were here they had a full recording setup in the band apartment, and were just like completely crushing it every single day during tracking um, Dean or I think it was mostly Dean I don't know if anyone else ever really like ran the setup back there but if Dean wasn't tracking he's back there recording someone they're either doing vocal pre-pro which is like kind of the last step that hadn't really been fully fleshed out before they arrived so constantly during drums, during drum edits, during guitar tracking, after Dean is in here, you know, playing guitar for seven or eight hours, he's back in the apartment tracking vocal demos to try and get, you know, stay ahead of the curve for the album. So I I really, I had a lot to work with and I had, I had him, I think I had you like stem stuff out for me too. So vocals, we had like just the demo tracks that I dropped in, in the project, right in, right in tempo. And lyrics were there i mean like everything was like, there's they did everything they could to most efficiently use our time in the studio which was awesome i mean and you can hear that you can hear that in the finished product and we still ran out of time a little and bit. we still did run out of time yeah which is a bummer you'll
1: always run out of time there's like a there's a law um I, I forget what it's called uh but there's it's it's kind of a joke law but if you actually it actually um, seems to apply to every project I've ever been in, which is that the length of time it takes to complete a project will automatically adjust itself to uh, however much time you allot for it. So if you say it's going to take three months, you'll find a way to run out of time at three months. If you say it's going to take two weeks, you'll find out, you'll find a way to pretty much get it done in two
2: weeks, but still, you know need like one or two days the planning phase for a project is actually really important because of what you're saying like you're sort of determining how you know the workflow and how the session is going to go and you can you totally can plan too much time for something if it's a project that needs to have a bit of emotion to it like there needs to be a bit of a time crunch there you know i think every uh, probably a lot of People listening to this podcast that have gotten into production, trying to record their own bands, have fallen into that where they're like, they go in with this mindset: we have all the time in the world. I'm going to record it myself. This is my band. I don't care if this takes six months. Like six months later, you're probably sitting on a pile of shit that you've just like overworked and had too much time on and had no deadlines to kind of create any kind of intensity. So um, that that's very, very much true. And I I kind of tell you know, like when I. Booking projects, so I can be like, well, you know, if we finish up early, then you know, I'll, I won't charge you for these last few days. But th- that is never ever going to happen. So,
3: well, I'll tell you that when when we recorded with Dave, it was uh, it was like here's here are the days that we are going to be in the studio, and it was Monday to Friday. These hours, there's a lunch time. There's you don't go past this certain time, and it was like very scheduled. It was like. You're going to work, which is exactly what it is. Even though it's an artistic endeavor, it's here's the working hours, and sometimes we would do a Saturday, but um, we would be at, back in, like David said, in the back in the apartment, pre-proing or tracking solos or whatever. But uh, but that sort of structure really made it easy to to see. Okay, well, here's how here's how the rest of the project is going to take shape because we understand that. Between these hours and these, between these hours, we're we're open to to record in this in the studio. But but past that, you know, he's hanging out with his family, which is like, you know, there's I don't know. That's just like a really like legit way to run it. You know what I mean? So that was something that we felt uh, we felt very comfortable with because we understood that. Well, if these hours are the working hours, and Dave's not sitting there stressed out, like he seems pretty relaxed. He's, he's so it's like okay. Well, I think we're probably going to get most of it done in time, and that kind of helped. Because the last thing you want to do is panic yeah. while you're recording an album, Yeah. and totally suffers. It makes the entire project suffer. You know,
1: I think that some producers who are first uh, coming up are get a little intimidated about imposing that kind of a schedule on a band. But in my experience, bands appreciate it because they they need to be reined in. Like if if you don't do that, if you don't impose some kind of a schedule like that, shit's gonna go off the rails. And you don't want the band to be in charge of the schedule because it'll always default to whoever is the, the craziest. <laughs> whoever, whoever, has the mo- whoever is the most unstable and insane with schedules, it'll default to that. So A producer has to do
2: it. Dave, were you always like that? For a long time. Um, you know, I mean, I, I have a daughter. I, I have a family and other kind of parts of my life that I've tried to keep in balance and and the longer I've done this the better I've gotten about like making sure to maintain that balance because it's it's super important. And I'm doing this like a band, you know, they they come in, they'll have maybe anywhere from, you know, 3 weeks to s- 6 weeks to 10 weeks of a project where man, they get done and they're like holy crap, that was intense. Like, oh, I just need to like shut down and just take a rest for a while. Well, you know, I maybe have a few days off, and I'm on to the next project. So it's it, a lot of it's about self self preservation. I just need to be able to maintain this like amount of work through an entire year because you know I've I've got that many albums to do, um, and you can very easily burn yourself out. and And that's not to say that sometimes you get near the end of an album and like okay, the deadline's there. There's more work than you have days scheduled. That just means that you're working fourteen-hour days for a couple of days. I mean, you, you know, you you do what you have to do uh, when the time comes to it. But if at all possible, I really just try and keep like a pretty consistent schedule. And um, honestly, the way Dean put it, as far as like just being able to set expectations, and it's kind of easy when when you're working, you know, eight-hour days, and you kind of know how much work gets done in an eight-hour day. It's pretty easy to like extrapolate that and kind of see what the next week looks like and be able to have an idea of where you are in the project. And then, you know, make adjustments to that if necessary.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like you're all going on a road trip and, or you're doing a, a tour or whatever. And you're like, it's going to take us this long to get to the show. It's like, well, I mean, factor in everything. And so if you can actually factor in everything, then your schedule looks more legit and it's going to be closer to reality. But, but yeah, when, when you're sort of just you know, oh, today we're going to work really hard or really long or what. It's like, well, you know, you never really know how much work you're going to get done in those last three hours where you're tired as shit. Yeah, or how much you're going to have to redo the next day.
1: I find that if uh, I push past a certain point, like you said, those last three hours get real questionable, and I can usually redo everything in 15 minutes the next day. Those three hours aren't worth it. Uh, and to your point about 14-hour days and maintaining – uh. You know your stamina, so you can just keep going for a year. The another reason to maintain an organized and I don't want to say moderate, but moderate schedule to where you're not redlining all the time is so that you do have the energy for the fourteen-hour days when you need to pull them.
2: For sure, and, and honestly, it kind of those are those are kind of fun. Like when those come up, if they're not happening every day or every week, they're kind of fun. Uh, and it sort of ends up being, you know, if it's a tracking thing, and it kind of ends up being like a bonding moment, almost, you know, between producer and and the band, just because you know you you feel like the troopers in there getting it done, and it's uh, and it th- things get silly, you know, past like twelve hours, like no matter what what you're working on, people fucking start losing their mind a little bit, and weird things happen. Some really cool creative stuff can happen. You know, like weird ideas come up and they, they become stories that you talk about later and sometimes, you know, are cemented for eternity in in some weird idea that you put on an album. So it's definitely, I, there's value in those too. It's just like if you're, if you're doing that every week or every other day, like you're just not going to last, you know, you won't have anything left. Well, you're going to have a lot of fun then when, uh,
1: the URM crew shows up (laughs) to your studio. (laughs) We have a lot to do in four days. So, okay, so when you guys actually got there and uh, it seems like both parties uh, were, you know, bringing their A-game to the table, band showing up with all the pre-pro and ready ready to do what needs to be done to actually play it. And Dave actually doing his job as a producer and... You know, being the boss and making the record better and all that. How long did
3: it take to make the record together? Uh, what was it like? Five weeks or something? I think we That's were in there quick. for five weeks. Yeah. Well, I mean, we. I. I. I'd say that it was five weeks of of uh, of being in the studio, and then we were tracking in the in the apartment in the back and. Uh, We were playing a lot of uh, Drunken Monopoly because Dave's Wi-Fi network is maybe not super fast at the time. And we called it Music Prison. So we were there playing Drunk Monopoly, (laughs) trying to watch Netflix, but it just, like, wouldn't really load very fast. So we were just like, yeah, Music Prison. And at one point, our van's insurance ran out. So, like, we had to, like, mail in. our, So we couldn't go anywhere. So it was like, well, there's a liquor store pretty close. So, I mean, let's just do that. Yeah. Waiting for their decals. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's just, <laughs> now it's the portion of the show where we talk about the differences between Canadians and Americans and the way they yeah. say things.
2: They yeah. say decals, decals. Uh, yeah, I still can't yeah, get over decals. it. Yeah, decals. Yeah, decals. Wait, 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 wait. For a first set, <laughs> Like, are we talking about a decal on a car? Like, they're stickers. So I didn't even know this, but insurance is like a, a state thing. Insurance is like a state or, you know, a country's... A, Government thing, right? And Canada, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well I mean it's yeah, yeah, it's sort of. Yeah. So they have to get their insurance decals.
3: All right, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah, we had to go get some pasta with our decals. Uh, yeah, they, they,
2: they yeah, say yeah. they're from Canada and <laughs> yeah. they call pasta pasta. Pasta? <laughs> what? That sounds like like the most hillbilly. Gonna have some pasta? Like what?
1: I've never see. I'm I'm used to like the the normal Canadian stuff like. <laughs> <laughs> you know that everybody that everybody says, but yeah. I've never heard of decals. Yeah, deckels and <laughs> Deck- pasta. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, no. yeah, yeah,
3: all right. I feel like I feel like you guys are ganging up on me here right now. All right, this is not fair.
1: <laughs> Was that good though to not be able to drive and not have much internet?
3: Did it actually help the record? I think it, I think it sort of did. It it really uh, it did make you go a little bit crazy. Like we were all feeling it pretty hard. Like going a little. Going a little bonkers, but it's like we're in the back, and 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 there was a there was a couple days where, where I was like, you know, I have this empty part in this song, and I could put a guitar solo in there, or a guitar lead or layer something. I'm gonna track something and see if it fits, and uh, and some cool stuff came out of it. So I guess it was good, but at the time, uh, it didn't feel good.
1: So let's talk about the cabin fever a little bit. you know, um, I actually think that that's really an interesting topic because I've experienced it. I know bands who have recorded with me have experienced it like I used to experience it with my own band on tour, like, like this, that weird cabin fever does set in. And I actually think that one of the determinants of if someone's going to last at this beyond like album one or, you know, the first year of touring or whatever is how well they deal with cabin fever Um, because it's, it's it's very very real so like how did you guys deal with it
3: I mean, we we have definitely all lived together, worked together, hung out together, jammed together like every day of the week for years. So it's not like we were on – it's not like we weren't used to hanging out together. So so that was fine. So we can all sit in a room totally silently and just whatever. You know, it, it's gotten to that point with the – although we had a new bass player, our, our bass player, Jared Smith. He was new in the band only for about, I'd say, maybe a year and a bit at that point. So – so he was new and that was that was kind of cool having like a new person there to sort of re-energize a little bit of the the dynamic. he was a, he wasn't old and jaded yet. right yeah so um so that was cool but uh but we're, we've all toured a bunch so it was it was it wasn't too much different it was like the fact that you weren't going anywhere and just it was the exact same uh sp- like place every day because we'll live in our van because we have like bunks built into our van so that was we're pretty used to that on tour, but staying in the same building every day and not going anywhere was really a little bit different. But uh, yeah, I mean, we've we've done it. I mean, we we that's the the basis of this industry, at least at our level and our genre. is you have to live in a small confined space with like three or four other dudes, and you have to just like it. You have to appreciate it. And like Dave said, like the shared kind of suffering of doing those really long days in the studio in the last few hours you're both in there together you're not uh you know it sort of bonds you a little bit so uh so we have a lot of that you know uh so yeah i don't know we're we're pretty it's a pretty good dynamic between the the group we all just say stupid shit nonstop. so that that was helpful just dumb shit
1: saying stupid shit is helpful you know one thing that i've noticed is uh With bands that are more veteran, one of the things that I'd suggest, and I actually suggested this with a lot of bands who wanted to be at my place for longer than a week or two, is that not everyone has to come down at the same time. Like, for instance, the drummer, if all he does is play the drums, I mean, that's not the case in every situation. You know, there are some bands where... The best guitar player in the band is the drummer, so he. he so uh, as a producer, I'd make him stay. But uh, but you know, in situations where it's more like the drummer is the drummer, well, is there any reason for him to stay past his ten days? Like like really like is there? Or if the vocals, you know, sometimes vocalists we'd get started on vocals way early, but then other times if the vocals are going to be last, is there a reason for him to be here? The whole time sometimes the answer is yes there's a reason but sometimes uh all it does is invite cabin fever however the flip side i've noticed is that when i do have people coming in and out uh there's like less of a
3: less of that like shared going in a battlefield on the record it's it's definitely something that we like. We all write in a room together. So for the most part, wow, like a real band, like a re- <laughs> um, the the writing process is really um, it's yeah, it's us all together.
1: Wait, that kind of blows my mind. Actually, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. Because that's really really rare. Um, at least in my experience. Um, Writing in a room together is like something that bands used to do, then they stopped doing. And uh, the only time that I've ever... I've worked with some really technical bands, and those are the bands that would never write together. The The only bands I ever worked with that wrote in the same room together were more like rock bands and stuff where it was, you know, where it's a lot easier to just throw riffs across the room, not stuff like you guys do where... It takes, you know, I I mean, I have never been around you guys, so, you know, but I know with, like, technical death metal that, you know, that
3: it, you can't just jam that shit. If you want to be around us, or specifically Jared, um, that's an hourly rate. So, <laughs> uh, Ollie, Ollie takes the money. Just send me you, the invoice. You pay Ollie the money, our vocalist. You pay Ollie the money, and, <laughs> and he'll give, yeah. The... Um, uh, it's extra if you're a guy. Uh, sorry, no, it's actually actually <laughs> now it's extra if you're a girl. It's changed. He's sort of like one of those <laughs> anyway, the uh, fluid kind of guys. the uh, the whole thing about writing in a room together was like uh it, it's been a a really just basically the cornerstone of our band, you know, since we've been together for almost 10 years, we just always have done that. So I'm sure you guys like bring in riffs and stuff though, I mean, We we do, but here's the problem with that is that when I bring a riff when I when I write a riff at home, all I have in my brain is the voices of the other guys in the band going nah that part's whatever. So it's it is hard to write at home because I feel like well if I write this and make this big thing, which happens sometimes but not always but happens sometimes, I feel like it's going to change anyway. So I might as well bring, you know the uh. The initial idea to to the guys and see what everybody thinks and and in that way you know the guitar players have a say in what the drums sound like or what the drum fill is like or the the uh the drummer has an idea what the vocal patterns should be and so ev- everybody sort of gets together on that. That being said, you get a lot of like that too many cooks kind of thing sometimes. So we've learned to be like when we were in a studio with with you, Dave. It was. Not everybody was in the tracking room at at one time, obviously because of <laughs> oh, space yeah. space yeah, issues. Yeah. Um, but also because of um I mean that that just adds too much. And and sometimes it's it's very easy to put out an idea and be like, oh, you should do this. But it's like, well, does that idea really like do I really need to pick this specific battle and be like, let's do this? Uh you know, why don't I just see how things kind of come out and and, it, and it'll probably turn out really great. And so knowing when to do that is good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it would definitely diminish some of the cabin fever if everybody wasn't there. But I also feel like if you're playing a song every single night on tour, you better like every single moment of that song. And so that's one thing that we do. We, we enforce sort of like a unanimous Uh, writing style. So everybody has to like a thing. So if everybody likes this thing, we'll put it in. If everybody except for one person doesn't like this thing, then we're not going to use it or we're going to change it.
1: And, And so when you have that situation come up where it's like four people like it and one person doesn't, are you guys at the point now where it's just like quickly you'll just be like, all right,
3: the part's dead. We'll find another part best feeling in the world to scrap a part that's not working for one person because you note that that person wasn't into it it's freeing it's, it's so freeing, amazing isn't yeah, it? even if you like it and and a part of it sort of stings to let it go it's still like well that person didn't like it so if that person didn't like it and they're going to be playing it every single night for the next however many years the band is going to be together then we might as well scrap it because that's going to make everybody happier, and it creates a better group dynamic. Group dynamics, so so that's a big part of our band.
1: There's no riff that's worth uh, losing the band over, right? And that's the kind of shit that makes a band break up. It's not, I mean, it's not like one time where someone gets unhappy, but it's like those little incidents over and over and over again over the course of x amount of time is what destroys a band. I think. Right. I'm just impressed by the fact that you guys do it with the style that you do. Well, we
3: all play within your monitors as well. So we have, we have that in our, in our, to our benefit. So we're in the jam space, and our amps aren't on. Uh, you know, There's no vocals going through the PA. We're all listening to each other very clearly. So that helps us. Um, and also, we've sort of gotten really good at, here's an idea. I'm going to come up with it right now and you have to learn it. Um, But yeah, it's an interesting group dynamic, I think, but I I feel like more bands would do it if they all lived in the same city. But it's harder and harder to find bands that are all living in the same city, like we are. Yeah. So. Yeah.
2: Even if they start that way, you know. Yeah.
3: There's
1: that whole Guitar Pro thing that I think really decimated that style of working together.
3: Yeah, Yeah, we we don't do that either. We don't write with Guitar Pro.
1: Well, there you go. Uh, When Guitar Pro came on the scene... Um, so my band never wrote really with Guitar Pro. Uh, we taught each other parts. and uh, and But in my productions, I remember when Guitar Pro came about that uh, less and less bands would play together, even if they were in the same city or in the same dorm room or whatever. Like, it just stopped being part of how they did things. Um, but, like, so... Hearing that you work this way, uh, like I think that you guys are a super musical band. That's actually why I wanted to have you guys on and why I've kind of been an advocate for the band is because normally uh, this genre doesn't get too musical. It's actually one of the reasons, uh, specifically what you guys do, um, was one of the reasons that I kind of stopped listening to too many bands. I feel like now there's a resurgence in it Um, but I've, but before that, honestly, in the technical space, uh, like the last time that I was really excited about a band was like when Epitaph came out. Yeah, totally. Um, Like we're like, we're going back (sighs) 15 years for, and I honestly think that for the, the, for the audience too, like there's been a few to kind of stoke the audience, but not in the same way, but anyways not to kiss your ass or anything but <laughs> i'm not surprised like i'm surprised that you guys write that way just because it's rare but i'm now that i hear that you guys write this way it's not surprising because that's what bands do that's what real bands do <laughs> and that's that's the way you make better music not it like it proves this argument i've been making for over 10 years now about how guitar pro Writing in Guitar Pro ruins music, and bands should write together
3: um, and play. Actually, play their song. That's it. Writing together. I don't. I don't. I mean, like, there's a there's a, definitely a specific style to writing with Guitar Pro, and I'm not going to say that that's a. I personally don't. I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad thing. I mean, I think it's probably something that. I'll say. <laughs> I think that. I think that <laughs> if. Uh, you know, uh, Bach or Mozart had uh, Guitar Pro, uh, and they could do mi- different MIDI. Like, I mean, hey, they would just they would use that. Sure, I mean, like, why not? It's an easier thing. But that's that's
1: different, though. That's really really different because they're not writing on an instrument that they're writing they're writing on an instrument that was then being uh, arranged out for. I mean, I'm sure they wrote piano music too, yeah. but. Like, they're writing, they didn't have the ability to, um, that's all they had. Right. So I, I feel like with guitar, it's very, it's a very, very different thing because the person writing it is generally the person playing mm. it. And the way that it's played has a huge, huge part to do with how it even comes off in the first place. It's not like a Mozart piece that can be reinterpreted a 100 times to a thousand different ways, mm. be played by a jazz band or an orchestra, right. and it's not the same thing. Like with be- with this kind of music, it's like the way that it's played is part. I think is part of the song itself, and that's why that's why covers get so weird mm. between metal bands. Like it's it's so specific to how the band that wrote it played it, in my opinion. Um, it's like why when you hear a band do like Raining Blood or something, yeah. uh, which is, I'm just picking a song that everybody covers, uh, they, like it, lots of bands can play the notes, but it's just not the same right. because they don't play like that, right. which I don't think is the same deal with orchestral music, so I kind of feel like Guitar Pro takes that out of the equation. So right, I I, I think yeah. that
3: if you're in a band, you should write together. That's that like I mean, in whatever in whatever context or in whatever dynamic and whatever in whatever uh, capacity, you should be writing together so that everybody has at least somewhat of a say in in the composition. That's 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 just like the basis of my idea. But anyway, Dave, you're going to say something.
2: I mean, it just it makes the whole the whole. Thing a little more interesting too, too. You're you're getting genuine interaction between musicians and mm-hmm. and uh, you know otherwise you have a guitar player writing a song and inevitably programming drums and. We've all heard drums that guitar players program, and then a drummer's, like listening to that and playing it. It's that's going to stifle his creativity because he kind of feels like he has to fit into a mold of something that's already written, mm-hmm. but not. And he doesn't have eight arms. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's, it just it opens up a whole can of worms. And and like you said, I'm I'm I really am kind of like on Dean's side as far as like I'm not going to say that that's like better or worse. It's just different. And I will say that like. When I think of rock music, a lot of what separates it from classical, from other forms of music, rock metal is is those like small nuances of an interacting band of individual performers and what that all sounds like together as one thing. Like it there's a unique thing there that could happen right in the way that you guys write, all in the same room, everybody putting in their own flavors, writing their own parts making up a new unique thing rather than like one person writing a song, everyone else essentially covering that person's parts and then that's yeah. what you get, you know?
1: Or- orchestral music is meant to be reinterpreted. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, that's a big part of it. Um, it's written for other people to play. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so do it, using something like Guitar Pro or sheet music, um, you know, whatever technology allows, in my opinion, makes a lot more sense uh, because the interpretation of the music is not in, you know, the map is not the territory. Yeah. Uh, What these guys are doing when they're composing on paper or whatever, they're just writing the map. Then the musicians take it and they show you the territory. But in the case of a band, the band is the map and the territory. Mm. So, And I feel like when they only make the map, and don't learn how to play this shit uh, properly, mm-hmm. or they don't like do those tours on the way to the studio like you guys totally. do, and they don't play the shit together. It leads to records that that's why these records start to sound very chopped together yeah. and fake and not like not like real music um, because these guys have never even played these songs in the first place. Mm. Yeah, like they don't have the they don't have the proficiency to. You know, to spell to show you the territory
3: musically. Yeah, well, I think that the uh, the the composition aspect of it should be done together, but the live performance, in my opinion, should at least with our band and our genre, should be as close to reproducing the album quality as possible. So, one of the th- Absolutely. one of the things that we do is we don't even listen to listen to each other on stage. So, we have in-ear monitor, a big in-ear monitor setup, and we listen to just the album stems. So, we have a mix, you know, we can control our, each other's mixes on our phones or whatever, and uh, and we can uh, and we can listen to just edited perfect album tracks and then ourselves and a click track and whatever else we need. So, we don't listen to each other are uh, each other's live feeds. What we want to do is just reproduce what you love on the album. So when you come see us live, it's like, wow, this really is, this is the reason why I came here is because of the music. And I really like this song and I, I love listening to it on the album. I'll come watch somebody play it live and it's like, wow, that's that's impressive. So that's that's the... You know, and then those crowd parts are harder hitting because they're louder and they're through a PA, and there's really like loud sub drops, and you can feel it. It's like we just want the album amplified. You know, short of putting it on a uh, just putting on a CD player and pumping it through the speakers of the PA.
1: <laughs> I back that method. Yeah. I think it's a really smart way to go. Um, my drummer used to do that. Uh, he would do in ears and have. The album guitars i mean we could play our parts but what if what if one of us can't hear the hi-hat or the snare that well that night totally and just starts to get slightly off then it starts throwing him off as opposed to yeah like you said here's the guitars the way they're meant to be Mm -hmm. so play to
2: that yeah i see that too and i and i i mean from the audience standpoint that it's probably preferable you're giving them a more consistent experience every time but you do you're missing out on some Possible special performances and some like some moments that might be more memorable. memorable otherwise, I, I'm not saying you should change anything, but I have done. I've done a similar thing. I filled in on drums for a band a couple of years ago, and I didn't um, really have time or the energy or the want to like learn all of the drum parts perfectly. And it's a band I had mixed, so I made myself like a, ch- a cheat sheet that I listened to, and it was essentially the album. And then I just overdubbed myself telling myself what to do next. So I would, tell, <laughs> cool. I, I would tell myself the next beat and then I would count myself in. And then I was just like, guy, I was like producing myself playing these drums. And I was like, man, this is so slick. It worked so well. I just play perfect every night. And then I did a couple of shows. And then I would like, I realized in the middle, I was like getting bored. I was like. I was like, man, I wish I could, like, check Facebook right now. I'm, like, playing on stage in front of hundreds of people, and it just wasn't— I I personally was, like, missing that actual musical interaction between the other people in the band. Like, I I felt too disconnected. I was wearing in-ears. I couldn't really even hear the crowd or hear any of the energy in the room. And personally, I felt disconnected. Like, now I've seen you guys live, and I've never gotten that impression from the crowd. So you clearly— We feel very disconnected while we're on stage. (laughs) I'm oftentimes checking my phone in between
3: songs. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, it's very disconnected. (laughs) What about during songs? Uh, Well, what we do actually sometimes is we'll— because we have a, a a laptop on stage on on our basically our our, our tower with all of our in year stuff on it, and I'll put on like a season of Seinfeld with the subtitles <laughs> on. Um, and so during breaks and during uh, like say like a set interlude or like uh, twenty seconds between songs, I can look back and watch part of a Seinfeld so- uh, show
1: episode. So <laughs> and
2: that's it's those little things that get you through the hard time. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. So. Um, I would, I don't even know if it would be possible because you guys have, are so used to doing it this way, but I would personally love to see the band just like play a show once with mm. amps and no in ears and no click track.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sound, sounded very exciting. About so, here's a,
2: so, you know, um, I, I've seen Niall back, like, you know, when Niall was a big thing and they were touring constantly and I was just like could do nothing but listen to death metal all day long I saw I've probably seen Niall like 10 times in my life uh, and I'd seen him a handful of times before It's a lot of Carl Sanders there's a lot of Carl Sanders yeah so, I mean, I was watching them when they pretty much had the same setup. He had his, like, MIDI rig on his guitar, and he used to bring an entire rack with, like, he, not laptops. I'm talking about, like, rack-mounted computers. He had a giant old-school CRT monitor that would sit on top. <laughs> like, I, I think this was before, like, LCD monitors were a thing. It was pretty extreme. I
1: toured with them once, yeah. man. It was like the other bands would get, like, six inches of stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. At, at these small death metal Size clubs. Yeah. The the other bands will get six inches of stage because his rig is just like, it's like Mark Tremonti's rig or something.
2: Yeah, it, it was monstrous and it was a lot of setup time and, you know, it probably caused a lot of headaches for other people uh, in the production. But I've seen him a few times with that and it was always good. I mean, they were tight, everything sounded Kick ass. Everyone was right on their marks. I was like, man, yeah, Nile's awesome live. Then uh, fast forward a few years to a Milwaukee Metal Fest where they were performing, and his whole rig shut down. They literally, they had a packed room. I mean, like a packed to the gills room. We're waiting for them to try and get this thing booted up for like a half hour. Like tensions were running high. The band was clearly super frustrated. The audience was super frustrated. Finally, they were just like, fuck it. We're done with this. You know, we don't we're not gonna have like, you know, intro and outro or segue music today, no midi guitar shit. We're just gonna play. And it was so sick. Everything was 15 BPM faster. Like there was so much more fury, like the combination of the frustration from trying to get that shit working for a while. And then it was like you cut the leash on like a pack of rabid wolves or something like that. And they were just like, free to completely annihilate and hands down the best Nile show I've ever seen. And one of the better death metal performances I've ever seen because of that feeling. So you should, uh, play (laughs) show for me, play show for me one time. Yeah. I'm just gonna, (laughs) I'm going to steal your, uh, I'm going to like steal your laptop power supply next time you guys come through town or something like that. And I, I think that one of the, one of the big things for us is like, uh,
3: if we did end up playing a show, um, without all of our gear, uh, it would be pretty close to what you would see uh, yeah. w- with it. However, yeah. the tempo ranges because they <laughs> would slightly they would be humanized. So it would be slight. Maybe something would be faster because you feel like it should be faster or slower or whatever. Yeah. I think it would just yeah. gas us out. Like so we've gotten so used to just setting our endurance level to a specific tempo that if you play one part five BPM faster. I'm gonna fucking kind of probably blow it a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, but who cares? But maybe that's part
2: of it. Yeah, it'll be furious. You know, like, and then it'll it'll push past your comfort zone, and then maybe a bit of desperation will set in, and you'll a whole new level could be realized that Mm. that now you really can't get to because you're kind of being held back. So I'm just saying there there are two sides of that coin. You know, like it could be. It could be cool. And you guys are such a, a technical thing that, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff needs to be how it is just to, to put on a good performance. But there's yeah. that flip side where, you know, if you guys want to do that for one show, just to see what happens. <laughs> I'll make sure it's Maybe, in Denver. Yeah. Or like, you know, if you're on tour and like a show just sucks and like no one's showing up, just fucking try it and see what it feels like. Maybe, yeah. uh, you know. It's too bad all of our shows are packed all the time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, I'm just totally yeah. joking. Yeah. I'm totally joking about that. One. Not to say that we don't play packed shows. I just, <laughs> I just <laughs> next question.
1: <laughs> I, hey, you know what though? Um, I will I will say that coming from a situation where I was in a band that did that in terms of playing to to the same click and a totally programmed show every single night, um, the times where the gear didn't work like you know
3: mm-hmm.
1: sometime in Europe or some shit um man sometimes those shows were the best ones mm. like because they were fucking explosive yeah uh but we we didn't reach the levels of uh, of technicality that you guys do I actually do have a question about that I'm sure you guys get asked about this a lot and so I don't want to talk about it too much but in terms of the speed, uh, I, I feel like speed in music is kind of like the same thing as in athletics yeah, or whatever. Uh, you know, one, there's a speed that people thought was normal for the mile, and then someone beat that mile, and then it got beat again. Or the home run record, you know, at one point in time, 40 home runs in a season was a thing. Then Mark McGuire and uh, Barry Bonds and stuff started destroying home run records, and mm. you know the bar keeps keeps going up. Yeah, and I remember sometime around 2005 or six that drummers in extreme metal suddenly started getting way way better, um, and. I figured out why. It was because they were listening, like this new generation was coming up that was listening to bands that had edited drums, but they didn't know they were edited. Exactly. They just thought that was normal. And so that became the new normal. Mm -hmm. And so obviously there's yet another generation that comes with like people like Alex Rudinger, where they learned from the people who, learned from those edited drummers. Um, So then, you know, you have that next stage of evolution where people like Alex Rudinger on drums, that level of drumming was unheard of even in like 2007 or something. So in terms of your level of precision and speed, it is pretty crazy. But to you guys, how much of it is... Pushing your abilities, and how much of this is just how you guys play at this point? Well,
3: I mean, it's um, it's interesting because the 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 instrument of the electric guitar has been around for a lot longer than like uh, like the style of like death metal drums, right? So death metal drums is like pretty new in comparison to playing a loud electric guitar on stage. Eddie Van Halen, yes, Eddie Van Halen was doing crazy shit long before um, you know, uh, however, whatever the first like you know, crazy death metal blasting drummer was like trying to figure out how to do the fastest blast. Like it just feels like the instruments are evolving in a different way. So guitar has gone through this period of time where we had uh Van Halen and then we had like Sean Lane and we had like, you know, Jason
1: Jessica Becker, Becker and all
3: these crazy guitar players that were pushing and pushing and pushing the speed. And and I feel like there's almost like a like a a kickback to that now where it's it's like okay, of course you can play fast. We want it to sound really interesting, you know, like Rusty Cooley. Holy shit. So fast. It's like, I'm not playing faster than Rusty Cooley and I'm not going to be able to, like, I just don't feel like that's in my, you know, musculature or whatever. Like, I just don't, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm going to try to get really fast, but I also want to create really memorable melodies and harmonies and, and compositions that work well with the other instruments. So while being fast is a really big part of that, um, it's also not necessarily the only goal. However, with the drums, drums are – are it, in that regard, it's 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 a little bit newer and fresher. And so if you're doing, uh, let's say, 358th notes and you're doing uh, uh, like a bomb blast or something, it's like, holy shit, I've never heard that before. You know, that's amazing. Nobody in the eighties was doing that. So it's like it's cool because we have this sort of different dynamic with the instruments where they're evolving at different rates. And the same thing with bass and this and now the same thing with, with death metal vocals, we're doing something or I'm not doing anything. I, I can't do that shit, but Ollie is doing something where where he's he's using influences from speed rap, you know. And so death metal vocalists have been doing, like Corpse Grinder was doing, like some fast uh, spawn of possession. There's been, uh there, there's been some bands that have done really fast, interesting passages. But what he's doing is taking direct, here's a tech nine influence and making it into, and putting it into a death metal style. And now he's even taking some uh like juicy j and some like sort of mumble rap flows and putting that in there. and now we've got this kind of interesting still really, really fast and pushing it in that way, but it's also memorable. so just like the 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 dynamics of the instruments and how they're evolving all together at different rates is I think what makes the genre interesting. and if you can get that at the just at the right moment, then it's then it's gonna sound really cool um but I mean. Uh, Spencer has definitely, you know, put a list of the fastest drummers in in Canada anyway. I was like, I don't really know many people that are playing faster and crazier stuff than him. But he's such a specialized drummer that all he does when he practices is practice that style. And so... Like an Olympic athlete. Yeah, and I, I love that. I think that's so cool. That's like okay, so we're not going to go up and play a jazz section. We're not going to go up and play a rock beat. No one in this band wants to do that. What we want to do is go up and play super fast, memorable, extremely technical, uh, like, you know, speed kind of breaking music, but it's going to stick around with you. So, uh, you know, it's a very specialized thing, and and, and members of our band have really specialized in different ways. but, But specifically, Spencer has specialized in here's this, like very very narrow field of study, and he's pretty much at the forefront of it. As much as anybody could be at the forefront of that, he is. So I, I think that part of it of the band is really cool. Well,
1: what what I like the most about what you just said is how uh, how much you guys know exactly who you are, mm. and I think that that's that's so huge because especially in heavier genres, man, there's like so much pressure from you know, elitists or the audience or from the business side of things to be a certain way or to appear a certain way or to be legit or this or that, there's all these different pressures Mm. on metal bands. And so you get, you know, like, there. at one point in time, it was not cool for a metal band to say that they were just, like, a metal band. Like, even though they sounded like Slayer, um, like, there was a time period where they couldn't, Admit what they were. And then there's another time period where playing solos just isn't cool at all. Like right. you couldn't be a good guitar player. There's like different rules in different genres. and But I've always thought that the best artists are the ones that know exactly who they are unapologetically. Mm-hmm. And the the thing you said about how the musicality is you know, just as much of a priority. Yeah, I can totally hear that. But I do think you're being humble about the guitar because... I don't remember people playing 350 eighth notes back in 2007.
3: <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel like I feel like my my favorite guitar players, guys like Paul Gilbert and guys like you know uh, uh, Marty Friedman and stuff. They were they were doing insanely fast stuff. And and the cool thing about being a guitar player now, playing this genre, is I can go back and be just as inspired by those dudes as I can be by most of the people today. And there are some exceptions. So I, a, a big one for me is Jason Jason Richardson. So Jason Richardson is doing, yes. like no one has done that. Like in my opinion, that dude is doing stuff no one has done because of how precise, and I've seen him play live before. Um, Man. He's unreal. But he is as specialized in that style. I feel like his best stuff is when he's going uh, like, uh, like a million miles an hour and it's, it's really interesting and it's cool especially that last track that they put out uh, Tendinitis that song is like wow like holy I don't want to like plug a bunch of other but it's like that, that song if if you haven't checked out that song, holy shit, there's, there's like the forefront of guitar in metal, like that.
1: I remember, so I co-mixed that EP he did with Chelsea Grin, mm. and I remember when things fell apart with Born of Osiris, I had heard the tracks for the record, for that record, and heard the leads. I didn't work on it, but I heard the tracks yeah. and was like, man, this kid's really good. And so when he joined Chelsea Grin, I remember the people kind of talked down about that band, but... I kept on saying before I even heard them, it was just like this guy's in the band, just wait and hear what happens if they let him do his part. Right. And then we worked on the EP and he basically totally took the band over. Yeah. And it's a basically a Jason Richardson uh, <laughs> EP. Yeah, I, I didn't listen to that one. It so. was you should check it out. It's not it doesn't sound like any of their other stuff. Mm. It sounds like a Jason Richardson. It's he. I mean, he wrote the whole thing and played everything. Just about crazy. It's not. It's Mm -hmm. the evolve EP. It doesn't. And it's got his orchestral shit on it. Mm. And it's like, it's Jason Richardson before, uh, before the solo stuff. But it's but it's not really Chelsea Grin. It's Jason Richardson basically taking over another band. Like, people who would be like, well, guitar players now suck. It's like, no, they don't.
3: No, they don't. You need to
1: hear... You're just not looking for the next evolution. And this guy, Jason Richardson, is the next evolution. If he was around in the 80s, he would have been hanging out with the Jason Beckers and the Marty Friedmans um, and the Paul Gilberts. Like, he is... That guy for our time period. Yeah. So you should respect him. And uh, now people do feel that way, but like I totally agree with you. I do think that he is one of the people that's pushing that envelope. And it is because he writes music. Yes. Like actual music. He's not just playing fast shit. Yeah. Like, well, and also the fact that he can actually play the stuff. Oh my God. Like it's unreal. Yeah. So the fact that he can actually play it. And it's super musical, mm. is unbelievable.
3: While while we're on the topic of just new guitar players, real quick, uh, if everybody, if it, we just did a tour with Obscura, so uh, supporting Obscura in the states, and uh, their new guitar player uh, Rafael Trujillo is unreal. That dude writes some of the coolest things I've ever heard, and his technical abilities are unreal. So if you just haven't checked that guy out, like that's that he's. Pretty new I think he's pretty new in the scene just because he's now playing with Obscura and, and doing a lot more touring with them, but man, that Rafael Trujillo? Oh my god, dude, he's unreal. So cool. Do you spell it kinda of like the guy from Metallica. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's he's amazing. Yeah. So anybody listening that haven't hasn't checked that guy out, like, holy shit. That guy's super inspiring.
1: Another another
3: one is uh, Brandon from Black Dahlia Murder. Yeah, yeah, Brandon Ellis. Yeah, he's great. His vibrato is amazing. That's, everyone yeah, just that,
2: talks about the dude's vibrato. Like every band that I have in here. Because <laughs> he's great. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it is really good. It is really good. Guitar Pro ruined
1: vibrato, yeah. that, in my opinion. <laughs> so I really do think that Guitar Pro... Um, writing on Guitar Pro and not actually playing stuff is part of why vibrato started to get really, really bad. You're totally right. You're totally right. The vibrato is the
3: thing that suffered from Guitar Pro.
1: And so when you hear someone like Brandon Ellis come around with like that classy, real wide, and just Mm -hmm. that Marty Friedman-esque vibrato, it's just like, yes, a real a real guitar player. So a few questions here from our audience that I wanted to ask you, Joe Monet was wondering if there were any slower than real time tracking on any instruments or vocal tracks. I'm going to guess the answers. No. No.
2: Yeah, I don't think so. No, we didn't do, I mean, we, you know, we did standard edits for sections, but, um, I don't like that vibe, uh, when you slow stuff down. I mean, I, I have done it out of necessity, um, but it never sounds right. Yeah.
1: So. The only time that I've ever been able to make it sound right is if it's, like, a 5 BPM thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, where the the riff or something is just a little bit, a little bit above the guy's ability to play
2: it with a good feel. Yeah. And so, like, I but, like, that halftime stuff yeah that's i i would i would say the exact same thing i've i think when i've gotten okay results it's like that like five or ten bpm and then uh you know if you're doing guitars then you just time compress the di's and then they reamp and they sound fine but it seems like the more common method is the half time and you just make cuts at every attack and like that literally will just sound exactly like you reamped out of guitar pro and what's the point
1: there is no point so <laughs> when when you say that the goal is so super technical super musical super memorable do you foresee that changing or do you just foresee you guys doubling down
3: um, well okay so we have um, a bit of a like a, a brand um, our brand is stay tech so we have uh, it's like a secondary logo basically. Um, and what that encapsula- encapsulates is basically this: what we're doing, and whoever else wants to join us. The the goal here is to just keep writing, and keep improving in this very kind of narrow field where you have musical, but really technical and instrument interesting. But but I'm we're not playing like I said before in sort of a jazzy kind of thing. I'm I'm probably not going to do. A poly- polyrhythmic thing into a seven-eight part into uh, you know a jazz section or what? Like what we want to do is just write really extreme fast technical death metal, and we're not going to add any melodic singing. No offense to anybody that wants that. I feel like that's totally a cool thing. Any, it's it's all art, so you know whatever you like. But for us, we want to just we want to keep doing exactly what we're doing and just get better at it. So hopefully everybody is along for the ride, basically in that regard.
1: Yeah, I mean that just goes back to what I said before about how, you know, the best artists know exactly who they are. But Dave, uh, as for you as a producer, like you're really well known for uh the extreme stuff you do, but I know as well as other people that know you that you can do lots of different things. Your your more commercial stuff sounds great too. Like you're you've got a lot of You've got a wide range as a producer, and um, I know that sometimes producers who do have a wide range of abilities uh, will try to bring other genres or elements to bands, whether or not it's appropriate, I guess. When you approach a band like this, what's the line for you in terms of bringing an idea to to the table? Because, I mean, like like Dean just said, they're very very clear on what the goals are.
2: Yeah, I mean it, it's really just what's best for the band, you know. Because I do work with such a wide variety, um, which, which honestly keeps me sane, and I, I I wouldn't want it any other way. But I'm I'm pretty good at kind of like shifting into a mode with the band and. You know, especially when you have dudes here, and that's like going back to like having everyone at the studio, even if they're not tracking, like all that stuff kind of serves to put everyone on the same page, on the same road, so uh, in a way of speaking. So, so, so you know, a few days in, I I, I wouldn't ever, you know, I'm not. Thinking about like, hey, there's this cool you know thing I use on this radio track. You guys want to try this in here? Uh, I mean, unless if for some reason it's a- absolutely fitting, which in an Arkspar song is just never going to be. Um, so it it really is just what's best for the project. And and I don't. I try not to like. I I use my experience from like obviously every project I work on and and everything I've done over the past twenty years, but. You know, I look at it through the lens of the project I'm working on at that time and what they want and what their fans are going to want and what is best going to represent them. I don't think I ever suggest anything too weird. O- occasionally, I might like I'll even find myself be like, man, I hear this like really melodic thing. Say I'm working with a band that that maybe not even Archspire, but another band that's just like really atonal, caustic, extreme. And I was like, well, if I hear a melody, I, I might be like, guys, I, I'm just going to show this to you because I can't get it out of my head, but I completely don't know if it's appropriate and you need to tell me, you know? So uh, I'll sometimes kind of refer to Bandus themselves to kind of like make sure I'm not, you know, stepping too far out of the lane. But in most cases, I'm I'm kind of just right there with them and, and, you know, and I'll know, you can just tell, you just know if something's appropriate or something's not, so.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I thought it was interesting that Dean said that Like, for instance, with the vocals, there's like speed rap. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, you know, I actually think that there's a lot in common between um, brutal metal and rap. But that's, you know, that's not exactly two genres that on the surface go hand in hand. You know, there's a time period where even admitting that you were influenced by rap would get you, you know. <laughs> yeah. w- 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 would not go over well and
3: and it, and there's many cities that we played where when we put on rap between, so we have changeover music and we usually put on Juicy J or ASAP Rocky or something, there's been a couple venues where the promoter will be like, turn that shit off you know? <laughs> and it'll be like, whoa wow. oh, okay, I mean you like the band, so it's like why do you like, I mean like, there's definitely some similarities to draw between us and them
2: so. There was a point when we, uh, when I was just first talking to Spencer and we, we'd kind of laid out some stuff for the album. I think it may have even been confirmed at that point, but I hadn't really talked to everyone else. I think I maybe talked to Dean for just like a split second and then, um, with Gordon, like kind of their label dude, a whole bunch. Shout out to Gordon Conrad, amazing. So, yeah, Gordon is the best, He's one the best. of the best dudes. Yeah, but uh, Spencer like sent me a random Facebook message, he was like, hey, are you into technical rap at all, and I honestly, I didn't even know what that was, technical speed rap. I, I had no idea. I'd never heard it. I'd never heard Tech It's nine. insane, isn't yeah. it? I mean, now I have, but even then, like, that's not something I'm going to listen to. It's just not my, It's not on my alley. Like, I can listen to it and, like, get some cool things out of it, but I don't personally listen to it ever. That's just not what I do, and I was like, no, no, Spencer, I, I've never heard that stuff, and I could, like, feel his, like, hesitation through the computer. <laughs> and I would, not, <laughs> I would not be surprised if, like, Dean got a message, like, shortly after they'd be like, dude, Dave doesn't listen to, to tech speed rap. I don't know. Maybe we should go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But then I got in here and I kind of got, like, I figured it out, you know, especially when he got to vocals. I was like, oh, they're just talking about, like, catchy flows. Like, oh, well, I, I know that. I could do that, you know? Yeah. like Yeah. So it's, it, it wasn't like, you know, even though I don't really like – the rap side of it i can appreciate what they took from that and put into this and i was like oh man this is really fun writing these like vocal flows is super fun actually like trying to like write catchy rhythms on top of this insane death metal it, it was like one of the more surprisingly enjoyable parts of the uh, of the album. And then, like, we'll track a section that would just be crazy insane, and we come back and listen to it, and everyone is just, like, throwing their hands up in the air because it sounds so ridiculous. And it was one of the more fulfilling sections that I kind of didn't anticipate, honestly. Yeah, you should listen to Ollie do impressions of,
3: um, of rappers that he really likes. Uh, I think he did a really good – he does a really good Ice Cube he'll just he Does just it? he 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 knows a bunch of like a bunch of verses and he'll just like bust out like Ice Cube and be like holy shit it totally sounds like Ice Cube or he there's a video of him covering a Tech 9 section uh from uh Midwest Choppers uh, on YouTube and uh, and he just like nails it like the the dude is very heavily influenced by that and i think he brought a little bit more of that like he's he's always bringing more and more of that and uh, as much as we sort of still listen to a lot of the same music that we, that we did when we started the band, um, there's also new influences in that regard. Like, you know, so new... New rap and and stuff like that. Uh, that's a big one. So
1: switching topics
3: a little bit, want to ask you another question from the audience,
1: but I want to preface this with this has been a real issue for me in my productions and also from both sides, both when working with bands or going into the studio and being produced, like this has always been like an issue because some instruments sound better than others, but at the same time, nothing sounds better than a musician that's comfortable on an instrument. So the question is from Max, and I can't pronounce his last name. Sorry, Max. With music this technical, do you ever find musician preferences for instrument set up to be an obstacle from a tone standpoint? And if so, how do you approach it, Dave?
2: Talking mostly about, well, okay, so there are, and that comes down to like everything from strings that people are used to playing with, to their picks, to their instruments, to drummers' drumsticks, and it's always a compromise. And the only time where I am pretty much like, okay, this is your time to shine, unless it sounds like complete garbage, you play with whatever you're comfortable with, are guitar solos. So... On guitar solos i typically let guys use whatever guitar they want to play guys or girls whatever guitar they want to play with whatever pick they want to play standing up, sitting down, whatever kind of, you know, monitoring environment, amp tone, amount of delay. At that point, I was like, this is, you know, you need to be as comfortable. This is your point to put your complete musical self into this part of the performance. All eyes are on you. So kind of give you free reign, unless it's just something like really terrible, like someone's trying to use like a felt pick or something like that, which (laughs) never had happened. But if someone did, I'd I'd kick him right out. Man,
1: I have had some guy insist on a felt pick and I've had Another guy insists on trying to play rhythms for a
2: super heavy band, oh. finger style. <laughs> oh my god! Some 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 dudes can do it. I've you know I've seen incredibly consistent bass players. This was not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no I, I fully I fully understand that. Then you just like hand them one point two millimeter tortex and like figure it out, or someone else is doing this. Yeah. Um, but for the rest of it, it really is a, it, it can't, you know, it kind of has to be a compromise because like rhythm guitar tone is a huge part of an album. And, uh, you know, if, If we bump your string gauge up a tiny bit, that is actually going to make a substantial difference. And we're tracking rhythm guitars for seven days, so you'll get used to it kind of thing. Or, like, honestly, the main one these days is picks. Like, most guitar players like to use these as little tiny Jazz 3 tapered edge picks or the nylon ones a lot. And while those picks have cool tone for certain sections— for, like, aggressive rhythm guitar, a Tortex is just going to sound better 100% of the time. And make, make like, a large, very substantial difference in the attack and, like, the punchiness of the tone. So, you know, I'm going to probably hand you, like, a green Tortex, and unless you completely say you cannot play with it at all, we're probably going to use that, you know, or something else that sounds good, and we'll try a few different ones. So, I mean, I think that kind of answers the question. Same thing with sticks. Like, that's a more that's a more difficult one, but it might make you, you know— it may- Makes such a difference, yeah. though. Yeah, I might make you try use heavier sticks, or at very, uh, at the least, if you do a lot of like intricate bell stuff, I might want you to use nylon tips. So, like, I know those are more expensive, they break, cause problems, but they will make your ride sound a lot cooler if you're that kind of a band. Or hey, if we're gonna try use natural, you know, kick sound on this album, I'm probably gonna loosen your kick drum. Like, I know you have it really tight because it makes your triggers work better and it gives you a bit of bounce, but. Doesn't sound that great, you know. For some styles that way, there's always going to be some adjustment. I try, and this is kind of stuff I typically go over with people before they start, at least drummers, because they're the first to show up. So they kind of need to have an idea. You know, there's not a chance to like converse about that stuff ahead of time. But I will, you know. And then, and then if it's never really happened, but if a guitar player is be like, I cannot play with this pick, I I absolutely can't. And then you know, maybe we figure something out there. You know, you have to be able to perform well. I mean, that's that's what people are listening to. So. It's just a compromise.
1: Dean, what's your take on it from the from the musician side of the fence?
2: I, I found myself going in, into the studio with Dave
3: relatively open minded, or at least I I, f- I feel like I was pretty open minded because I didn't want to go in there and and shut down ideas and have the album sound not as good. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, if he ask me to play with a different pick, let's you know I'll try it out. And I've found like it's totally changed the way that I think about playing guitar and recording guitars. Now I have picks that I use only for recording and and then only for live. I, I didn't quite realize the difference that it would make, even from basically the first riff that we played. Yeah. Yeah, the first riff. Pretty we, dramatic, yeah, isn't it? The first riff that we tracked, I was like, oh, this is crazy. This is like way more pick tone, and and just like, it doesn't pull the string, because I'm used to using 1.5 Jazz 3s, like the Intune 1.5 Jazz 3s, and they feel great, and, I, and I'm so used to playing with those, and, and I love the way that they play. Um, but if I'm in the studio, I'm I'm gonna go with a thin big pick. I mean, even for for a lot of the really low riffs, we used. I think we used a .88 Tortex. You know, for something on my on the low, if we're tuned down to a drop E on an eight string, it's like that just sounds way better.
2: Yeah, that's not that's not thin to me. That's like that's kind of where I th- where I think picks are usually like best balances like .8 to mm. to one millimeter typically. But we do, I do, I mean, I, I'm i sure we do in the Arts I do typically on almost all my albums. I'll kind of have a, we'll have a, a few picks around, and we switch between them, you know. for Sometimes for clean stuff, if you use one of those tapered nylons, they really bring out the lushness. That softer ly- nylon material, like, brings out a little more of the body of a string um, and can really, like, give you some nice, warm, clean tones. But actually, it has this, like, sparky, sparkly element, too. But for standard, like, distorted rhythm guitars, I... I I personally think the green, I don't know if they're 0.8 or 0.88 Tortex, the green Tortex just almost always win. But then, if there's a trim section, then we'll use a thinner one. You know, we'll go to a 0.6 because you're able to gloss over, you know, three strings at a time, picking really fast, and get more note and less pick out of it, and it's going to pull it out of tune less. Yeah, I, I I feel like the biggest piece of advice I can ever give to
3: a band that's maybe new or they've been playing for a few years and they want to sort of get a bigger profile is defer to the to the expertise of somebody that you're working with. And so, I mean, like for for this example, it was okay, well, you know, what, what type of, what type of setup, what type of picks, whatever it's like, be open to it. And it's the same thing with anything else in the, in the industry as well. If you, if you genuinely trust somebody's opinion and you feel like you, that they, they're probably more experienced, more well-versed in, in the subject that you're talking about, let them give you sort of like the path that you should take. And, and, and that's really helped us. So for this example, it's, Gear in the studio, or there's always exceptions to that. But uh, but if you feel like this person really does have your best interest at heart, then yeah, defer to their expertise. And, and in this case, it made our rhythm guitar sound way better. I mean, the big thing for us was we were tracking, I think, with Pod Farm in Dave's studio. And if you can make that sound good with the DI before you reamp, if you can make Pod Farm sound good, like this dry kind of, you know, it's it's not cutting edge technology. It's not the newest plugin. It's like here's this thing that. Sounds okay, and if you can make that sound good before you reamp, then you know the guitar tracks are going to sound really, really good. And they did end up sounding really good.
1: There's some great sounding records that have used Pod Farm, amazingly enough. I'm glad we got to talk about this because I feel like for newer bands, but like a big obstacle to overcome the veterans, this is never an issue. Like, veterans, the veteran bands. You know, they know the score. They go to the studio ready to make a record. But the less experienced bands will get precious about gear and things (laughs) that you shouldn't get precious about. And it's not talking shit about them. They just don't have the experience yet to know. And so I think that what you said about if you actually trust the person that you're working with, and I mean, why would you go
3: to him? Right. Right. Other than, other than you want to go there and, and subconsciously show off how much you know about this certain topic. Oh, I'm going to go there and show them up when it comes. Like some people have that in the back of their mind too. They're just like, oh, I know how to do this. We're going to go track it, but you know, I'll take over a little bit. It's like, no, man. Like just. You know, just be vulnerable in that kind of space and be like, here's our music, what do you think?
1: I've definitely experienced like bands coming to where I was because they liked the records that were coming out of that studio, but then questioning every single thing that was going on, but it was generally the newer bands. It was never the vets. It was always the ones that still had a chip on their shoulder, something to prove. That something to prove vibe was they had something to prove to us, they had something to prove to the audience, they had something to prove to their everybody still
2: this honestly could apply to like some of the listeners listening to this and and because this kind of platform that you've guys created you know you get a lot of cool tips and you get a lot of these things and i can imagine it would be easy for people to only hear those tips and then not hear what we're saying right now because it's not as fun it's not a tip it's not like a concrete like oh hey here's this quick trick to get this amazing thing what we're saying right now is probably more important than any of those tips together unless you're at the point where you're in the position of power producing bands and and you know, if you're going to a producer, let them like give them the power for, you know, first of all, take your time, make the right decision. And then once you make that decision, like commit to that and really let that person guide you. Because if you've made the right call, they will have your best interests and have more experience than you in all these regards, you know. So it hasn't happened to me much lately, but it has a few times. And if it did now, I would be so incredibly annoyed by like someone being like adamantly backseat producing and if it came from like something from like a podcast or something like that I would probably lose my cool pretty quick and I almost never <laughs> lose my cool yeah that's a big part of why we enjoyed working with you because you were never you never
3: seemed stressed even though you may or may not have been I I'm, I mean like I'm not inside your head but the day to day it was like I feel like he's got it under control like the timeline you know as as much as at the end we were sort of just like we're a little bit tight for time but it's like but we knew that was going to happen it's not like we went and being like here's it like yeah, we knew yeah, that yeah. we are going to have to bust our ass in the studio to get the album done yep, in time yep. yeah that was a big thing it's like we're going to put the trust in you that you're going to be able to do all the things that we asked you to do and, and do it in the way that we wanted you to do it and, and you blew it no it's kidding no. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, Dave I actually
1: I was wondering what you meant by something you just said You said uh, that yeah. if it came from a podcast
2: it would annoy you more like what did you mean i just know there's a lot of there's a there's a lot more transparency between people doing this day-to-day in the industry producers now yes. and uh people coming up so this podcast would be one of those newer things that's happened in the last five years you know, and this is across almost any industry, especially creative industries. The that separation of knowledge is not as wide as it used to be, which is really cool. No more monopolies on information, right? I mean, yeah, and it, which is which is really cool. But it's easy as a I can imagine as a, as a less experienced person, it would be easy to cherry pick that information and not take all of it. So th- that's what I'm saying is like, don't go into a studio, and then maybe you heard me say one time that a green torque Tech's You know, 0.8 pick gives the best rhythm tone and, you know, pick a fight with your producer that wants you to use like, you know, a one millimeter pick, you know, like at least try it out, you know? I mean, give everything a fair shot and it's easy to just like pick those little quick tips and think they're going to, like, make all the difference, I mean, really, you got to put those together with all the rest of the knowledge and, like, trust in the process and that sort of stuff. The
1: tips themselves aren't what makes the difference. It's the thought process that gets you there. There's a big thing.
3: I I really like uh, the magician's pen and teller, and they talk about how when you tell somebody the the secrets to a trick, they, they find themselves really bored, and they don't actually care. So it's like, mm-hmm. here's here's how this trick is done, and it looks amazing. And so it's like, okay, well, here's actually how it is. Uh, we have somebody backstage doing this, and then this person's doing this. And then when we do this, we have this thing. And it's really complex, and there's a lot of stuff to do. It's not just yeah. a, oh, we did this one thing, and somebody's like, oh. It's never a satisfying answer. It's always just hard work and practice and timing. It's the same thing with this. In order to know the secret, the secret is experience and knowing a lot about it and doing it a million fucking times so that you can actually – you know, feel comfortable with uh, how good you are, and then even then being open to learning things.
1: You know, it's, it is interesting though, because Dave, what you said, I, I'm sure it happens. Back when I went to Berkeley, I remember going around Boston looking for a studio for my band to record in. And when I told people I went to Berkeley, I learned real fast I should stop saying I went to Berkeley. Because the people would immediately hate me, and I was like, why, <laughs> "Why? Why do you guys have a problem with Berkeley kids? Like, well, I'm not going to give you a problem." And they're like, "Well, you might not, but typically when the Berkeley kids go around town, they act like they know everything because yeah. you know they had they learned three things in their studio class. So they go to, they go to a studio <laughs> and they tell the guy that makes a living who's been doing this for 20 years." how to do their job. And so I'm sure that people watch Nail the Mix or do the podcast and cherry pick information, like you said, and then misuse it. But I hope that listening to this, they'll stop doing that. And actually, (laughs) I, I know that it's kind of unavoidable when... You put yeah. out this much info to this many people. Yeah. But my only hope is that people do listen to the deeper message behind all that, that it really is not about the individual tricks. I mean, they're cool. They're cool and all. It's good for your vocabulary. You should have as wide of a vocabulary as possible. But if you don't know, if you don't understand how to form those sentences based on those words, it doesn't
2: matter how many words you know. Right. Yeah. And I'm and honestly, this whole platform and Nail the Mix is... Actually gives you access to all of that, so, so it's not like you're just getting the tips and that's all you have to work on. Work with you know you 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 see the entire process. So take all that in you know and gain the knowledge from that stuff rather than just like getting a little like uh, you know the the quick you know pulling the soundbite kind of type deals, you know, like I have so many hobbies and I constantly am like trying new stuff. And I fully admit, I'll do that. If I, if I'm not going to do something a lot and I just want to like, kind of get, you know, video editing recently, I just wanted to put together a quick video. I was playing around with something. So I watched a bunch of YouTube videos. And I'm just fast forwarding all over the place. Like, I just want to know how to do the thing. Like <laughs> enough of this talking, just show me that's, show me the, the three buttons that I click to do this, and that's fine, you know. But it, but if you're trying to take it a step further than that, than just like a casual thing, then you really got to dig in and go beyond that. It's not about a bunch of like three second sound bites. It's about putting yourself in the experience and with the capabilities with Nail the Mix. It's about like actually digging into all those tracks, different tracks, trying different things, listening to critique. You know,
1: what I always tell people that the best way to go about it, um, with uh, with anything that they learn from us, but we'll just use now the mix, for example, is mm-hmm. when you first get to tracks, you do your own mix fast. Like, Mm -hmm. Go like in a couple days, normal speed for if you were getting hired, you know, like turn it around fast and then put it down and wait until the Q&A happens. Ask your questions, figure out, you know, have your list of questions of about what was challenging for you and talk to the mixer or post in the group and tag the mixer, ask him questions. Then after the Q&A, start from scratch all over again and mix it. But with, with those answers in mind, but only spend like a day or two on it and... Be done with it. And then when you see Nail the Mix live stream, you know, ask your questions, take notes, like pay attention to how it was done in real life, and then put those notes away and mix it a third time from scratch. But every time, I I think they should do it from scratch without, like, looking at settings or anything like that. They should be asking questions about concepts and then try to incorporate those concepts into their own mix, but without settings or anything like that so that they don't lull themselves into a false sense of competency. And besides, it doesn't work to copy people's settings, really. Yeah, Um, yeah. Kind of the same way that, uh, Gene, you were saying about uh, magic tricks. Um, it's, It's, you know, you could... They could tell you how to do one of their magic tricks, same way that Gordon Ramsay can explain how to cook a pasta, a pasta on his show. Yeah,
3: pasta. <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> but you're pasta. probably not going to be able to pull it off like him, even if you have all the same yeah. ingredients.
3: I just want to say I think it's funny how you guys are talking about this very in depth. Very like uh, cerebral th- sort of thing about the processes of mixing, in. and you're like, yeah, like Dean said about magic tricks. Like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I like
1: I like to tie conversations together, but you know those those high level, let's say illusionists. That's actually very comparable to yes. recording in that their world used to be kind of like a secret society. Uh, right. Where it still kind of is yeah. more so than recording. Recording definitely used to be like a secret society. And this this information, the, the, these platforms for information are, you know, we got a lot of hate for doing this at the beginning. And it's because it was kind of breaking that, that code of silence that was mm-hmm. a thing in the studio world. And it's a very similar thing too, that like when you actually see how technical it is behind the scenes, it's not nearly as sexy as... Uh, Mm. As you think yeah. it is, there's actually a lot of parallels, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, yeah. between the two worlds, except in recording, you're not going to get eaten by a tiger. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So, so that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so, okay, so speaking of actually doing stuff, like actually getting better, like you said, you can... Learn some tips and tricks if you want to dabble in something. And it's probably easier than ever to get mediocre at something mm. because, yeah. you know, all the basic information on getting mediocre is easily accessible for just about anything. But for you specifically, mm-hmm. Dean, this is a question from Dallin Perkins. How the actual fuck do you play so fast? So, like, <laughs> what goes into it? Like, actually, like, on a technical daily basis, like, discipline level, like, what, what goes into that?
3: Um, I'd say that one, because I teach guitar, um, I used to teach a little bit more guitar than I teach now, but, but I still, I still do teach. And, uh, uh, one of the things I've noticed that like, is sort of the, the ultimate thing to getting the most control over the fastest technique is splitting the workload over multiple, uh, muscle groups. So when it comes to my right hand, I'm not just using my wrist or my fingers or my elbow or my shoulder, I'm using all of it. At the same time So that's a big thing when it comes to speed Is having it so that your control level goes up So the speed ceiling of your controlled techniques goes up And that's a daily practice thing of playing very slowly Analyzing how you play fast And then taking that exact same movement And just slowing it down Because a lot of the times when we practice something slow We use entirely different muscle groups than we do when we play it fast So we have to analyze how we're doing something In, in this sort of like what, what our ultra fast mode is and then taking that all those muscle grips and slowing them down and realizing that well i need to minimize the amount of lost energy going into this technique um as as much as i can so that's a big part of it um daily regimen practice i i don't really practice as much um lately uh I'm sort of going through a period where I'm also doing a lot of video editing. So, But well, what about when you did? How about when you were building it
1: up and getting there in the first place?
3: Um, I would play. Let's say a lot of my the baselines of my technique came from uh, when I was in high school, and and during the summers I would play six, seven, eight hours a day, something like that. And that's a lot of just playing the very basics and understanding how your body works, and also. For me, it really inviting uh, new movements that you don't really realize you're doing. So let's say something recently that I've done that that's boosted my speed was I've incorporated uh, index and thumb movement into my fast picking. So it's uh, so everything else will stay still, and I'll just practice index and thumb movement and and it just to move the pick. So it's a different way to move the pick and when i get that that motion somewhat mastered or at least like i have some sort of competency at it then it'll start to add its way into all my other things all my other techniques all my other ways of playing and and then my playing will be 10% faster or whatever because i'm splitting up the workload between multiple muscle groups and and that's what i find is is really important number 1 don't fool yourself because when people go and Thank they say you here's, for this, that. here's this riff i'm playing it it's like no you are not <laughs> <laughs> like you aren't, if you aren't no if you don't know what what pick stroke each individual note is being played by and why it's doing that, then you aren't really playing it. Because oftentimes people will just go, like I said, to this ultra fast mode, and this ultra fast mode is essentially useless because we play an instrument that has more than one string. If we didn't, then it would be fine. You could play in one string all day. Ultra fast mode doesn't really matter, um, uh, because trem picking is just okay. Tense up. Get as much motion in there. Uh, hit the string as many times as possible. But for us, we play an instrument that has more than one string, so we need to sort of adapt. There's all these different styles of of picking different things, and, and it's really just comes down to really simple math: downstrokes and upstrokes, and where they all fall on each string, and and being, like I said, honest with yourself. If you know that, uh, if you know what you're doing, and not just essentially faking it, because everybody know the, knows the transients on a waveform will tell you if you're faking it, and if you don't know what you're doing then you're going to see it, and it's not going to be able to – it's not going to translate well, especially in a recording setting.
1: Sounds to me like you approach it very much the way that an athlete or a – Dancer would approach their discipline.
3: Yeah, I mean, like you. Yeah, you definitely play. You play enough, you start to learn some some small things about how to how to do it.
2: Dean should plug his YouTube channel because he he's got a Dean is a it's a clearly a very good teacher, and I honestly like kind of figured that this out more after he left, really. But you have a video series. What is it called? Like Dean learns to play blank or something like that. Yeah, it's
3: it's called Dean attempts to learn. Dean (laughs) attempts
2: to learn. Yeah. And yeah. it's it, honestly everyone should watch him. We'll put a we'll put a link to this in the show notes. Okay, cool. You definitely should. He's got a few of them up there, and I don't even play guitar. And I have watched full episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you miss literally. Me. I'll, yeah, I just like it's just mostly because I just miss Dean. Yeah. Just, it kind of feels like we're hanging out. Yeah. Um, when yeah. I'm just like replying to emails, I put Dean up in the corner of the <laughs> screen. But he goes through the entire process, and he. I mean, you can hear him talk about this, and you understand how methodical he is, and how much he thinks about things before he does them. He doesn't just like jump in, you know, head first. And you get to watch his entire process and that is from picking up the guitar all the way through learning a section and that includes warm-ups and that includes like the thought processes of of like okay, well, how am I going to break this down? What are the technical tools that I'm going to use as far as like bringing this into a DAW and slowing it down to try and learn this. It is super instructional. And if I did play guitar, I would fly to Vancouver to take lessons from him because <laughs> he's one. He's like really. He's just a. He's a really good teacher. He explains things very well, and uh, and everything is real thought out and makes sense. And I was like, man, yeah. I I don't even like. I'm familiar enough with the instrument, obviously, doing what I do that that I can look at that and be like, that is the exact right way to approach this.
1: Mm. I imagine that it also it it also probably saves you from injury to really mm. break down the mechanics that much.
3: Yeah, I mean it 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 probably has. I have had some injuries with my left arm specifically, some ulnar nerve uh, inflammation, uh, which is a, a kind of a bummer, but but that's also part of it right so i mean like learning how to adapt learning how to put the least amount of effort in for the most amount of results so not doing wild movements not so understanding how to keep your hands like as tight to the guitar as possible and and all that kind of stuff so like the real bottom line is that people when they learn how to when they learn how to do something they are looking for the quick tips and the things to make them really amazing at it and those Things are cool, but the real baseline is just how much time do you put into it? So mm-hmm. I know <laughs> some, something that I listened to, Lauren Michaels on SNL, he was saying that he uh, one time got a job offer, two job offers at the same time. So he's from Toronto, I think, or Ontario, at least. And uh, he got a job offer from the CBC, so the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, to do uh, a project. Uh, so it not actually. the
1: Center for Disease Control?
3: I don't think so, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, he got two job offers. One was to do a government-funded sort of project uh, every two or three months or to go to L.A. and do a project every one or two weeks. Um, and it was, so it was with two different companies. And, and even though the quality of the project might suffer because of how much com, uh, condensed work you'll be doing, your, your, uh, your ability to do projects will, will greatly increase like your quality of the projects will eventually start to go up quite a bit because you get used to to knowing how to do projects yep. and, and the repetition it's like the same reason Bach was such an amazing composer is because he worked uh, uh, he had to write a new mass every week you know he had to write hours of music that you ha- also had to have uh, the ability to improvise over top of that music in the same style and now he had a lot of music. Was every song that he wrote or every piece that he wrote a total banger? like, no, but he wrote some of the most amazing music you can listen to and so much of it because of his experience in doing that. And so uh, I I really feel like the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And uh, and it's really just time. So how much do you practice a day? So that's really, you know, that's the end goal. And so if you don't do enough, then you're probably not, the quick tips are not really going to get you there.
1: It's interesting because uh, you know, some very, very intimately familiar now with online education, both taking it myself and running this company. When I decided I was going to start this, I dropped a lot of money to learn how to run a business and how to market it online. I'm mean, talking like I spent like twenty grand on courses, like basically like a a small college education on how to do this. And one thing that I did was put the shit into practice immediately and did a lot of work. This is is over a period of like 18 months. And I met a lot of other people who were also dropping money on courses and not getting any results. You know, they'd get mad. They'd be like, this is a scam or whatnot. And I'd be like, this is not a scam. I'm getting fucking great results with the same... Information, so I'd start to analyze like, what what is it like? I don't think I'm that special. Like these people, they're not. Like it would be easy to say they're all idiots. That's why it's not working. But that's not always. That's too easy. That's not Mm -hmm. always the case. Mm -hmm. What was always the case was that they just wouldn't go the distance, and so. Exactly. That's all it was. That's. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they'd be dumb, and sometimes they'd have a stupid idea, but more often than not, they just wouldn't go the distance, and that's the end of it. Like, they just, mm-hmm. they'd buy the course, learn the superficial shit from it, maybe get a slight boost to what they were doing, and then that's it. Then they'd move on to the next shiny object before really mastering one thing. Yeah.
3: Well, it's, it's, it's the reason why generally people don't do that is because they don't believe in themselves that they can do it deep down. So they see some sort of obstacle and they go, well, who am I to do this thing? All these other people have done it, but they're better than me. I
1: feel that way too, but I just ignore it. So do
3: I absolutely and you just push through it and then yeah. when people start saying hey you're just as good as this person that you think that you personally think really highly of you're like no i'm not and and the truth is that you are because if they say that you are then you are who who are you to say that they're wrong right so it, it really is just allowing yourself to to fail and, and but putting in the time and pushing through all the negative thoughts because the negative thoughts are the things Everybody has those in their head. Oh, you can't do it. Like, you can't do this thing. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. All this stuff. So-and-so did it, and they did it in less time because they're younger than you or whatever. Constantly comparing yourself. It's like, if you just push through that and be like, "Hey, I enjoy doing this. I'm gonna keep doing it. I'm gonna get pretty good at it, maybe." And you know, and and eventually you will if you're if you're gonna put the time into it. But it's all also about priorities. You know, if you have a family or or whatever, and you have other things, other obligations, you need to to put in, and the balance of that is really tough too. So that's why I'm probably gonna get a vasectomy, everybody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was watching a director's roundtable the other day. Um, uh, you know, like a bunch of Hollywood directors, like great ones sitting around talking shop. I feel like Darren Aronofsky said something like, bad reviews suck, great reviews are worse. Yes, totally, yeah. (laughs) Which, um, but I I agree that like, if someone thinks you're good, you are good because it's perception. But at the same time, I I don't listen to what they say. But that doubt, that self-doubt thing, um, I think that anyone who has done anything great, just about, unless they're a complete psychopath, and I'm being serious about that. Unless they're a psychopath. Yes. Psychopaths actually have a lot, of, a lot of tendencies towards success because of the way they're wired. But if you're not like that, you probably will have a lot of self-doubt. And uh, the big difference, I think, between the people who get somewhere and don't are <laughs> the, the ones who just ignore that doubt. Like, you get it, you acknowledge it, and then you say fuck it and keep going anyways. Yeah. Because if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. So fuck it. Why not Mm -hmm. just do it? So Dave, here's a question for you from Cameron Simpson. And he says, it's not a question. It's more an appreciation to that cymbal hit at 3 minutes and 9 seconds. <laughs> that hit felt isolated but at the same time it was the perfect transition back into the song. My question would be was that a decision that was made by Arkspire or was that your decision? And this is me asking uh, do you even know what he's talking about?
2: <laughs> no, I don't. Can I Is it right after my solo, I think? I mean is it just the is he talking about the fact that there's just like a A measure rest with just a bell.
1: I think he just means that like there's so many different things you could put in that pause. You could have put nothing. There could have been a drum fill. There could have been like a reverse swell. There could. There's so many different things, and uh, he says, I think he was just saying that that just felt like the perfect thing of all the ten million things you could do or not do that felt perfect but he also is saying that it felt like an isolated hit like recorded separately inserted there as the transitional idea i guess separate
2: from the song i honestly can't totally remember i i do love those little bell huts. that's kind of like a cephalic carnage kind of thing too they were a real belly band back um before that was real too popular on another project i did like way early in my career i actually used to in the studio i had a extremely old microwave that like had a physical dial that counted down. And when it, when your food was ready, it had a like a ding sound that was an actual physical like bell ding <laughs> sound. And, um, I totally did. We like on some goofy project I did a long time ago. We totally recorded it and used it in a spot like that, like in exactly the same kind of fashion as kind of like a bing, you know, then the song kicks in kind of deal. Dean, do you do you remember if that was like written? Was that like something you guys had on the pre-pro, or is that something we did in the studio? I have no idea.
3: I'm pretty sure it was something that we had written, but uh, but I I think that the comment is is. uh is cool because yeah, if it's on the it's on the four of the bar, I guess if you're depending yeah. on however you count the bar, but the uh, so it's it is kinda cool like dun bump, and then like on the one you really like dig back in. So it's like I don't know, it's it's yeah. a cool placement. Um Uh, yeah, I mean, that was just something that I'm sure Spencer could have put a bell anywhere, but I guess that was the kind of the thing that that drove you back into the riff uh, enough. And and it was enough of a uh, a juxtaposition between the crazy solo before it and here's just one simple hit. And so that might be something cool too, (laughs) where it's like, Crazy section, building up, building up, building up. And actually, I don't know if anybody listening to this is uh, super interested, but the section before is based on the Conflictatus Maledictus section of Mozart's Requiem. It's transposed down to B, so down to I knew it. Yeah, yeah. So I listened to that. I mean, I I love uh, that piece, all the movements of that piece. But that section specifically, I heard it. I was like, man, that would be amazing as a heavy riff. And I was like, what's the lowest note that Toby has? Because Toby plays seven strings so that we could both play it. And uh, and that and that worked pretty well. Um, I think actually Jared is playing one of the vocal melodies as well. So one of the, I don't know if it's a soprano or whatever, but uh, bum, bum 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 that kind of thing. So at one point he goes into that, and uh, and then while I was writing the solo over top of that section, I was like, my life is so cool that I get to write <laughs> A crazy solo over a Mozart, like a thing that Mozart – like I, I have a bust, or at least, at least my wife Claire has a, a bust of, um, of Bach next to us, and I think we have a Mozart bust somewhere in our apartment. And uh, and I, I just felt really like – it's kind of weird. It kind of felt really close to him. It was really <laughs> weird. I was like, this is amazing. Like I'm – like. You know, so I took the bust into our bedroom. You slept and, with it, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah, yeah, was yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> really close. Uh, you put lipstick on the bus. Absolutely, you
1: know. yeah. It's it's interesting. I was actually wondering about that if you were using quotations from a certain orchestral pieces because I could hear it, but what it, it sounded authentically done. You know, when like neoclassical shred was a Thing and people would be like, it's so, it's based on classical. I'd be like, no, it's not. Like, hmm. it, it's only on the most surface levels in, like, right. patterns. Like, a guitar player would use the same pattern that Vivaldi would use in a in a fucking warm-up exercise.
3: Yeah, basically a, like a riff. Here's yeah. a Bach riff. Right, yeah. Or, you know, yeah. So I understand. It's like, that's neoclassical, I guess.
1: But you're doing it in a very authentic way that actually kind of captures that flow, that orchestral music has which is really tough in riff based music.
3: Yeah, it is it's very tough the uh not to say that I'm doing it as well as maybe I could or as other people have, but but for me I really like the I love the instrument of the guitar. It's so expressive. You can you can bend notes, you can play notes harder, or softer, or whatever. But when you put a lot of distortion on it and as much as we kind of have to with this genre and when you gate the shit out of it and when you edit it on the album, the it, it doesn't it's not like the violin or the cello or the voice. It's not quite like that. Like there's expression in it, but but sometimes I find like the instrument itself is, is lacking in the way of dynamic. And melodic
1: and melodic uh potential in my opinion.
2: Yeah. Timber. I mean there's just yeah, there's a lot of more variables, honestly, with like a more acoustic instrument,
3: right? So, so for me, when I listen to uh, orchestral music, or when I listen to uh, even like a string quartet or something, and, and I'm like, wow, there's so much flow up and down with the volume, all this stuff. There's like so much stuff that I wish that we could accomplish with that, and and uh, and there is some like some highlights of that on the album a little bit. Uh, there's a song, the last song, "Dark Horizontal," has a part that I wanted to sound like a pizzicato violin, so we put. Um, uh, I think we put, like, something to mute the strings on both sides really heavily, and I picked it as if you were sort of, like, plucking the string of a violin. And, and, and the I don't know, like, I just love stuff like that, um, and I think everybody in the band sort of uh, also l- loves that stuff, although I, I feel like I probably listen to, to the most amount of uh, of concert music, so, like, Bach is my favorite, you know, he's just like stream of notes. You know, everything that he writes is here's a here's a chord progression and it's arpeggiated in the stream of notes. Just da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da and it's just like so virtuosic and so amazing. And that's that's the kind of stuff that I like, but I also want to take in some romantic area influences like Mozart and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just tough with the instrument that we have. So so I turned it in, I turned it into a dumb guy death metal riff. So there you go. <laughs> well I <laughs> you're, you're,
1: <laughs> you're the first person I've ever Spoken to who understands that they're not the same thing. Like yeah. it, one of yeah. the, it's one of my biggest pet peeves. When people say that orchestral and metal are the same thing, because they're not. But Mm. okay, so on this topic of uh, your influences, so I actually have a question. So, human murmuration, you know, that Mm -hmm. slow arpeggiated intro, are you and Muse inspired by the same people? Or are you, because I know that Muse is a very orchestrally inspired band,
3: or is that song inspired by Muse? I actually had never heard anything by Muse that sounded like that, So I, I, until I saw some people commenting about it. So, I, I, I mean, I had listened to Muse a little bit just because of teaching, um, and some of my friends kind of, nobody in the band really, but some of my friends outside of the band.
1: Have you heard the song Take a Bow?
3: No I, ha- no, I haven't.
1: You need to listen to Take a Bow because...
3: Is it exactly the same? It's, go check it out right now. Oh, man, they do it really cool too. That's sweet. No, I never heard that. Um that is super cool sounding. Uh, it's it's really similar. So you have uh, augmented and major triads put together, sort of in the same spot. So it turns into uh, one of my favorite modes of melodic minor, mixolydian flat six, uh, or at least it sort of insinuates that, which is a really cool mode. Like it's so uh, spacey, and it has that that minor six. But when you take the five out of it, it's just like makes it sound like you're in Close Encounters of the Third Kind or something like yep. that, which is like, that's where I got that idea from would be s- movies like that, like s- movie scores like that, or um I think that uh, Hans Zimmer might have done something kind of similar. It, it was sort of like, here's a spacey intro, and if you listen back to uh, our second album, uh, the Lucid Collective. There's some stuff in there that has that same sort of insinuating the same kind of mode that Mixolydian flat six with a, a major triad. Then you bump up the five to a flat six and it becomes sort of like this augmented style thing. Um, but then it kind of releases and goes back and forth. There's lots of stuff like that. But but I had never heard that song, so it's just sort of coincidence.
1: Uh, you should listen to that song later. Okay. Just okay. from start to finish, it's pretty. It's pretty fantastic. Great. Yeah. It's uh, it's that. It, it's arpeggios like that the whole <laughs> way through. Um, but it just builds and builds and builds until, like, it explodes. But it's, like, just – it's arpeggios. It's those arpeggios, but just they keep on – they just keep on ramping up the intensity on them. Like, cool. it's, it's fucking awesome. But um, that – I was just curious because uh, – It's um, very similar. It's very similar, but also the thing I know about them is, like I said before, uh, it's a big pet peeve of mine. The fake orchestral shit in metal, and so whenever I hear like an authentic orchestral influence, I'm like that person gets it. So yeah. I actually am not surprised by anything you're telling me. Mm. What I, I was curious if you and Matt Bellamy, the dude who writes all this shit for music, are probably influenced by the same exact music. I guess um, so. Yeah. More than more than likely. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, that settles that. <laughs> I was gonna say, also, host the planets um, has a lot oh, yeah. of stuff like that in it yeah, too. Totally. Uh, yeah, totally. Do you like any of the late romantic stuff, like Gustav Mahler?
3: Um, I haven't really gotten into Mahler. I'm i have just more into like like some of my favorite pieces are like uh, the lute suites, like box loot suites. Mm-hmm. So like you just listen to just stream of notes, and that's pretty evident in a lot of the stuff that I that I. Uh, I play as well. I love that stream of notes style thing, but but the sort of romantic kind of up and down uh, tempo wise, we can't really do that. So for for me, like we we like to keep everything um, different tempos for each song, but but we like to keep things very like robotic. And so it's a bummer that we can't that we don't really do a lot of the ups and downs, flowing, free flowing sort of uh, you know that uh, the tempo up and down like that, but. Uh, the I haven't really gone into Mahler. Uh, I also didn't really go to music school. So um, if you uh, have any other composers in that era that I I, I maybe I, maybe I do. But I didn't I didn't I didn't
1: get this info from from okay. music school. yeah. I
3: I just like knowing like the everybody from exact whatever whatever era. I I'll, actually you know what, you know who I really love is uh, is uh, Ravel Maurice Ravel and. Oh, uh, he was great. And, yeah, great orchestrator. And W C. Yeah, but both both of those composers uh, are some of my some of my favorites. Um and I and I actually there's a really, really awesome uh Harvard lecture series called The Unanswered Question, um uh, by Robert Bernstein. Uh it's like an eight hour long lecture series. I, I have it on audiobook and I've listened to it a bunch of times. Uh and it goes through uh one of the chapters is called the uh delights and uh what is it the delights of ambiguity. And so it's, like, a lot of the stuff he goes through, uh, it's, like, here's how these composers created this ambiguous sort of tonality, and there's, mm-hmm. like, this free-flowing chord section that insinuates something, and then it takes it away. Schoenberg is is the composer that he uses for an example of that, and while I'm not super into Schoenberg, like, he's, I mean, he's a little kind of crazy, it's that style and that, and that era that I really, really like, and uh, it was just, just, like, modern enough where I can get into... Uh, you know they use a lot of really big extensions chord extensions and stuff like that but it's not directly influenced by sort of major key jaunty epic yeah. uh you know uh uh standard concert music so yeah i don't i don't know it's uh
1: have you heard of declart knocked by uh, Schoenberg? it's uh, before he went nuts with the atonal stuff but like it was when he was like right on the edge of going there so oh, yeah. it's still like somewhat melodic and right. stuff but like you can tell he was about to go nuts it's uh, to me it's like his best shit cuz the atonal mm. stuff is not my thing
3: it's it's a little crazy
1: yeah, it's a bit much. But, you know, it's interesting you brought up Debussy and Ravel. They're both uh, real great innovators in orchestration. And yeah. uh, the thing that I think that Debussy has in common with uh, the style you said you like, like Bach, the, which is the stream, of, yeah. like the stream of notes, like Debussy is impressionistic, so it's not exactly like the constant stream of like 16ths just coming at you, but there's a lot of tremolo stuff happening and there is still like a steady stream of notes it's it's uh it's from a different time period and mm-hmm. it comes across in a different way but there's still that like that steady flow yeah which is really really cool and he definitely took orchestration to a new place so yeah. two more questions that i want to get out before we end this this one is from mike nolan because uh, I'm curious about this, too. The gun samples in will Animate are awesome. What did the recording and mixing of those
2: look like?
3: Oh, the recording of
2: them. Well, Dave. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty fun story, actually. So those are all um, actual gunshots that we recorded, all of us shooting guns. Yeah.
1: Uh, Canadians shooting guns in America. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's because
2: I have um, a few firearms of my own, and I've got a good buddy, Nick. Yeah, shout-out who, to Nick. Uh, Shout out to Nick Nick Sutton. He uh, currently does not have any Thanks, new firearms, but but he did, and he took us all out. And I think it was mostly because I had Canadians here um, that I was like, "Okay, we have to go shoot guns," because um, we have one thing in this country that's cooler than your country, and that's you. <laughs> go shoot guns. So yeah. that's like the only thing. <laughs> yeah, that's our one claim to fame. Yeah. Also, sometimes we you know fall to the same bullets but um, yeah you have regardless. that
3: cool you have that cool opioid uh, epidemic that one's cool in america oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's do. pretty cool <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. anyway sorry um, so anyway we went up we went up I, t- I had a little uh portable zoom uh recorder and we just like turned it on and kind of had fun it was like a sunday or saturday off kind of thing and i chopped a bunch up um Because that—that I mean—that wasn't a plan from the beginning. That's like an uh, homage to a tech nine part. Isn't that—that's correct, right, Dean?
3: Yeah, from uh, stamina. That part's so cool, by the way.
2: (laughs) Yeah, cool. So, and then we—they had the pattern was already set. I think we mapped it out using a snare drum, or you guys had like a program snare or something. Yeah. We did tweak it a tiny bit during the recording just to make it fit, but the pattern was established, and then I just took those—you know—forty-five minutes of shooting guns and picked out some cool and some of them were the guns we were shooting there's a couple other people at a spot that we were so there's actually some variety in there it's kind of hard to tell underneath the vocals but um and i just made like a cool little pattern out of some gunshots and layered it right in but yeah it does sound really cool and honestly the isolated um the isolated gunshots sound really cool that little zoom recorder did a pretty kick-ass job yeah
1: all right last question This one is from Isaiah Prather. And hey, Dave, love your mixes and was always curious how you found such an amazing balance between natural sounding drums and the insanely polished recording sound. Like heard on the last two kettle Decap records, as well as the record you did for Archspire, those drums sound super great, but still feel heavy as hell. Any info on the tracking and mixing side would be awesome. So how so? How do you make them sound awesome and real and polished, but real? <laughs> yeah,
2: all of it right I now mean, really, in five it, minutes. Tell me, it's really just it's just the mindset. You know, I mean, it's it's takes a lot more time um, than you know doing like a pop rock mix where you can just like toss on the latest drum samples of the week because it's just, you know, like a four on the floor beat at 145 BPM or something like that. You, you If you put those same drum samples on like an R Spire song, it would sound just so stupidly ridiculous. I mean, it just is, you know, these drums are more expressive. And, um, you know, a, a lot of it, so the two albums that you mentioned, you're talking about, you know, Spencer and uh, Dave McGraw who are like both incredible drummers and they give me such an amazing platform to work with. So I'm not creating anything with these guys. I'm just accentuating and presenting their performances in, in like a polished format. So it's not like, Spencer records his parts, you know, and then I'm like, okay, what should this snare drum sound like? What should this, you know, what should these toms sound like? How, like, how should I, I'm not taking his performance and putting it in my own box. Like, it's already all there. You just have to, you know, and honestly, you know, Mix uh, subscribers know that already because you hear the raw tracks. Like, that, that's pretty much what they sound like. You know, there's not a huge, there's augmentation there, but nothing is majorly shifting. So... A lot of it comes down with using samples from the session. Like with this style of of drumming, you really got to dial in those snare sounds and try and retain as much of that natural performance because, you know, blast parts and right-handed versus left-handed blast parts, gravities, um, switch blasts, all those things sound different and they have to to keep that feel like through the recording. So um, you figure out how to use as much of those mics as you can. And then when you augment, you know, use a good amount of sample set from that from that drum set so that it blends properly that gives you a little more control over dynamics that allows you to you know kind of pull things towards the center a bit and give some cohesiveness across all the tracks cuz sounds are going to change a little bit over recording even if you're you know tuning after every song or in in between, you know, every 10 takes or whatever. And then a lot of it just comes from, like, understanding dynamics and how drummers play different parts. Like, that's drums was my first instrument, so I, I do think, honestly, that set me up pretty well for my position as a producer because a lot of guys come from the guitar world or... They play piano or they're a vocalist or, you know, a composer or something like that. But with heavy, you know, super fast technical drums, there's a lot of just like physical knowledge that you have, like or knowledge about the physical aspects of playing drums. That you kind of have to know to, you know, use samples and augment, you know, crazy blast beats and make them sound natural. So it's like, how hard is he going to be hitting here? Um Where is it going to be? And that also goes back to the editing. Like, okay, well, I know from playing drums similar to this that like after you finish this blast and you hit this crash, it's going to take a certain amount of time to get back. So I maybe am not going to like edit certain sections quite as hard as I would because it's just going to make it sound unhuman. You end up with a record that just sounds like computers, you know, rather than like retaining just the right of that human element, also tightening things up. I mean, so it's kind of like, I'm kind of cheating there just, just from my knowledge of like being behind the kit rather than just recording it.
1: So knowing more is cheating.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, it's experience that you can't, you know, no one could just like gather real fast, you know, it's like, it's, it's parts of my musical history that kind of benefit me specifically in these scenarios.
1: Man, I've always thought producers should learn how to play a few different instruments. Like, even if they're not going to become, like, world's best, they should take drum lessons for a year and things like that.
2: You have to you have to be able to like kind of put yourself like flip the tables you know and like you don't necessarily have to actually get behind the kid and and you know uh, show a drum or something which i can do sometimes i'm i'm never as good as the drummers i'm tracking but i have enough ability to like get my point across but you you do have to understand what it is back there and not only the physical limitations of you know only having two legs and two arms but like, what makes sense? Like, what drummers would do? And then after the fact, and you go back and you listen to these parts, you'll be like, okay, well, something is a bit off here, but what was the intent? So where do I have to move this to make it the intent? tension of the parts like even if like you know every take isn't always the best when you try when you're tracking and maybe you know you're looking at four different four or five different factors of a take and oh man we nailed three of them here you know the dynamics are good um, the energy's good your tempo is up your consistency was great there's this one little flub here um, but everything else is so cool that we're going to go with it and move on well i have to understand like how to how to compensate for like Maybe the one or two parts that we just didn't get super perfect on that take, and pull them into focus. And it's it's just knowing where where it's supposed to go, where it is, and where it's supposed to go on the editing side. And then understanding you know dynamics and the physical aspects of playing drums, and to, to know like what what sample velocities are supposed to go where, and that sort of stuff, and how to edit um, to the point where it sounds like the the dude is just crushing it, but that it's still a person.
1: Sounds to me like we've got a topic for uh, a <laughs> fast track here.
2: Yeah. I've, 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 you know, I've been watching the uh, comments and a lot of people are talking about that, but it's, it's a, it's, I kind of just like, I mean, I just already said it all. So please send your money to Dave
3: uh, <laughs> at, at flatline.paypal.com. Uh,
1: <laughs> this, there you have it. Well, Dean and Dave, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Talking to both of you, thank you for taking the time to, you know, talk to me. And uh,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> no worries. No, no, for real though. Thank you. It's it's been awesome having both of you on.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, doing good time. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast has been brought to you by IK Multimedia. IK Multimedia gives musicians access to the most famous and sought-after guitar gear and studio effects of all time. With our amplitude and T-Rex analog modeling software, now IK has created the ultimate all in one One bundle for bands and engineers. The Total Studio 2 Max. Combining all of IK's award-winning amps, effects, sounds, and more. It's everything you need to track, mix, and master your music. IK Multimedia. Musicians first. For more info, go to www.ikmultimedia.com. This episode was also brought to you by Fascination Street Mastering Studios. Have your songs mastered by Jens Bogren and Tony Lindgren, the engineers that mastered bands like OPEF, Dimmu Borgir, Arch Enemy, Creator, Sepultura, Amana Amarth, and many more. By using the coupon code URM18 in the online mastering configurator, you'll receive a 15% discount on your order. The code is valid for the rest of the year visit www.fascinationstreet.se to learn more and book your mastering session today if you like the unstoppable recording machine podcast make sure you
2: leave us a review subscribe and send us a message if you want to get in touch